from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe, from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron, for three for the win, yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, a very dear friend, a fellow sports business classroom alum, big time Lakers fan, the most prolific guest and also co-host on this uh, podcast, Duncan Dynasty, Corbin Ford. Corbin, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Garrett. You already know what it is with us. I'm happy to be on all the time. I love it. We're just pushing the record of, of Corbin appearances here. One tick higher, and I'm all the more happy for it. So, yeah, happy, just thank you for having me on, man, always. So Corbin and I are going to be breaking down uh, four series in the first round. We basically came uh, decided upon the four series that intrigued us the most. We're recording this on a Thursday night, so actually two of the series haven't even been decided yet because we still have the, uh, the final couple of play-in games happening Friday night. But uh, the the four series we're going to break down on this episode, we're going to talk about the 4-5 matchup in the Eastern Conference between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the New York Knicks. We're going to discuss the 2-7 in the West between the Memphis Grizzlies and the Los Angeles Lakers, the 3-6 in the West between the Kings and the Warriors, and we'll wrap it up with the 4-5 in the West between the Suns and the Clippers. So, uh, you know, Corbin has has done a couple of, of these types of pods with me in the past. And what we've done, essentially, we each will uh, take one team and break down our case for what we think the strengths and weaknesses are and what are some of the interesting interesting battles that we'll see between the teams. But for this first matchup, I'm going to be uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers and J.B. Bickerstaff, while uh, Corbin will be the New York Knicks and Tom Thibodeau. So, uh, Corbin slash Tom, what uh, what's the uh, what's the most sort of interesting element uh, that uh, when when you look at these two teams going head to head, what uh, what intrigues you about? I think the fact that this will be the first time that both teams have been whole um, for the most part uh, in the first game that um, the, the the four matchups that were played. Obviously, you know the Knicks uh, won three of the four. Um, but in the first loss they had, Donovan Mitchell put on like just a massive performance at at home. And that was before, you know, Coach Tibbs went and reshuffled his uh um lineup, you know, Cam Reddish left, you got Josh Hart, all of that happened. Um the Knicks won the next three, but they were playing against a Cavs team that was out several of their players, whether it was uh, Donovan Mitchell who had just come back from injury and definitely looked out of it. Um Jared Allen missed one. You had one game where both teams missed several different players. Um, so I think you're getting a team now where, for the most part, everyone seems healthy. The one big question mark, of course, is Julius Randle, uh, who's playing. We haven't heard any news, uh, or any update, rather, on that sprained ankle of his. 
but that is something that you know he's definitely going to play. I definitely think he that he will. Um, but doubt he'll be one hundred percent. Now can he be eighty five percent? You know, eighty. Like what level of effectiveness can he be in terms of playing his game? Um, what level of mobility will he have? That's going to be important. But I think for the most part, yeah, it's just going to be really interesting to see both these teams at full strength playing against each other for a concentrated period of time for the first time all year. Yeah, it's it's funny you bring that up that uh, we didn't get to see uh, either team at full strength. I you know tried to watch some games, Corbin, ahead of us recording this. <laughs> of course, with, uh, with these matchups, and not only with Cavs Knicks, as you mentioned, uh, Jared Allen missed a couple of the games. Uh, Darius Garland missed the first matchup. You know, Julius Randle missed one. Um, but like the other series, we're going to be talking about as well. Basically, there were hardly any times where, you know, of course, we've got like with Phoenix, you have Kevin Durant, the Kevin Durant trade and with the Clippers, the Russell Westbrook acquisition. So there's very, there's very few examples of games that you can look back on and say like, OK, this is how this is going to play out, you know, yeah. um, and the Grizzlies, of course, you know, they they are missing a couple of guys in Stephen Adams and Brandon Clark. So just all over the place, it, it was tough to to really get a grip on things. But um you you brought up that uh, yeah they that these teams played uh, four times and the Knicks won three of the four. Just uh, doing a quick bio on the two teams, the Cleveland Cavaliers in the four spot in the East with a fifty-one and thirty-one record, seventh in offense, first in defense, and second in net rating at plus five point eight. The Knicks at forty-seven and thirty-five, second in offense, nineteenth in defense, and seventh in net rating at plus three point four. All this according to uh, cleaning the glass. But, you know, the the interesting thing to me as the Cavs or the, to the challenging thing as the Cavs and as J.B. Bickerstaff, when I look at this matchup is, you know, you talk about the Knicks star offensive players. And again, this Knicks offense was excellent. Second in the NBA behind the Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jalen Brunson put up 48 points in that last matchup. And the Cavs' defensive weakness really is that backcourt with Darius Garland and Colin Sexton. So Jalen Brunson, able to get to his spots, able to feel very comfortable. And Julius Randle as well is a guy who, you know, Evan Mobley is a terrific, terrific defensive player. But if you were to say, okay, what's the weakness of Evan Mobley defensively? It's probably his strength, right? Mm -hmm. And Julius Randle is one of the strongest forwards in the NBA. Yep. I got to say, first of all, um, you said, I know you didn't mean to, it was a slip of the tongue, but one that I'll benefit from, you said uh, uh, Darius Garland and Colin Sexton. I prefer Colin Sexton to Donovan Mitchell. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But no. I'm glad you caught caught that. Yeah, that's all I like. Donovan Mitchell. Listen, I love me some Colin Sexton. No, I'm kidding. But (laughs) to go back to your point, (laughs) to go to your point, though, yeah, I think Evan Mobley is going to, his frame is something that, uh, you know, playing with the battering ram that can be Julius Randle could be an issue for Mobley. I think, though, that one thing that Mobley does have on his side is just the sheer length, you know, and the fact that you are probably not playing a healthy Julius Randle. So how effective can he be battling into the lane? If he doesn't have that, you know, shiftiness or, 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 or dexterity full range, you know, with his ankle being limited. And if that's the case... That think that Evan Mobley can definitely stand a reasonable chance. Now, that being said, you know, Randall's become a quite prolific three-point shooter this season, right? If his stroke's fine and you're pushing out Mobley in space, he's definitely can play there. Wouldn't say he's most comfortable playing away from the basket, just 
full out if you decide Julius Rand- to make Julius Randle just a straight up stretch four. You know what I mean? And put my action that pulls Mobley away from the basket. Um, full time, is that Mobley's like style of play? I don't think so. Um, but that's something that I can see the Knicks maybe looking into or pulling in other guys like um, Obi Toppin um, as well to bring in some more shooting from that four slash five spot to really open up the floor a little bit for a Brunson, a Josh Hart, obviously a quickly. Um, I don't know why I said Josh Hart before quickly, but quickly, uh, RJ Barrett, then Josh Hart, guys like that to then, you know, penetrate. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Julius Randle three-point shooting because in the game on January 24th, the probably the, the closest facsimile of what we'll see in this series because both teams were as close to fully healthy as possible in that game, and the Knicks won 105-103. Julius Randle put up 36 on 8 of 12 from the three-point line. And that really is like, as much as, you know, I feel like early career Julius Randle was kind of what you described as that battering ram. I feel like as he's, uh, you know, progressed in his career, he has become more perimeter-oriented. And his game, whether he's doing well or doing poorly, is reliant on that jump shot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know... Um, how much Mobley can impact that will be will be interesting to see. And then another thing, you know, just looking at kind of the aesthetic, the style of this series that I think is going to be interesting is, you know, the NBA has become this, uh, you know, spread pick and roll type of game. And these two teams and these two head coaches are kind of old school guys and they prefer the traditional center and there's going to be a lot of minutes with multiple bigs out on the, on the floor. Yeah. That's going to be something for sure. How are, are the guards for both teams going to be able to navigate that space when you are going to have traditional rim protectors, you know, around the basket, you said the Cavs deploy, you know, that three out two in type style, right? Offensively, but defensively, the same thing. They're anchoring the backside um, between the Knicks, between, of course, your Mitchell Robinson, you know, your Isaiah Hartenstein, your Julius Randle, your, your Obi Toppin, all these bigs that play more traditional games. Now, yes, there are wrinkles here and there for each of them, but for the most part, that's the kind of play you're getting. So, yeah, I, I definitely see um, I definitely see that being the case. Um, I, I think that one of the bigger things is, okay, how can we use that to our advantage? How What actions are going to do to play certain guys off the floor? I think that the Cavs have the advantage with their bigs in terms of being more mobile, right? Being more, quote-unquote, switchable. You know, you don't really trust Randall that much. He can switch in terms of mobility, but not defensive instincts in that way. You know, Obi Toppin defensively, please. Uh, Mitchell Robinson defensively, you know, definitely more of the bigs who are not comfortable in playing in space. So I definitely see more of uh, the big, the deep drop. I see both teams probably in doing that. And guess what? The Cavs can each rely on that deep drop between Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell playing right into their sweet spot, pulling up from three, getting to that mid-range jumper. That's going to be an issue. And on the next side as well, you know, Draylen Brunson, Definitely can play that type of game. And R.J. Barrett, if his jumper's on, can do something similar as well. Yeah, and I think that's a fascinating element of this contest and what the Knicks are going to do defensively. Because as you said, their personnel, especially at the at the big spots with with your Robinson even and your you know Hartenstein as well, uh, those guys are not switch centers. They're going to drop. So then how do you effectively contain the likes of, of Garland and Mitchell off of those off-the-dribble shots, like you said? And, uh, you know, a couple of things, it's, it's, it's going to come down to a couple of things. A, you know, how well do, uh, you know, Brunson and Grimes and quickly, how do they navigate those screens and get over and get those rear view contests? But then also, you know, if a Coro's on the floor for Cleveland, right? 
you know, how much can the Knicks help side defenders sort of close that space and mm-hmm. make a guy like a Coro hit shots and just make it make Garland and, uh, and Mitchell feel like, you know, uh, a little bit claustrophobic when they turn that corner. Exactly. And you're right. Junk it up, making it difficult, making sure that they're, you know, shooting over, um, over a contestant. They have, you know, uh, their, their presence is felt. And I think how they're going to do that when it comes to limiting, you know, uh, attacks to the rim, I want to see kind of what guard finds more success, you know, finishing along the trees and really, you know, penetrating the teeth of the defense because Tibbs will definitely make it difficult for that. If you're going to beat the Knicks, I think you're going to do it with your outside shooting. I think they're going to cheat off of Isaac Okoro, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, I would say Dean Wade. Dean Wade can shoot the three, but like, you, can, I think you can stunt and close out hard on him. He's not very good shooting the three, you know, with defenders in front of him, right? Um, Chetty Osmond, I think, can get hot, but he can be streaky as well. So I definitely can see the Knicks kind of shifting their defense more to put that pressure on you know Garland or Mitchell and I, I imagine that one of those two will be running the offense for the Cavs at all times. Absolutely. So thinking about uh, as far as who the Cavs are going to end up playing more at that, you know, you've got your top four guys in in Mitchell, Garland, Mobley, and Allen. Those guys are presumably going to play thirty five plus minutes every game. So, you know, the the big question and the big weakness all season has been, okay, who's that fifth guy, right? And you for the Cavs, you've got some options, you know, and and they bring some different things to the table. Of course, you've got a Coro who brings that hustle, that uh, transition offense, and also that defense. You've got Chetty Osman, who has that uh, prolific three-point shooting ability. Dean Wade kind of gives you more of what they got last year out of Lowry Market and where you can kind of go with those with three bigs, but he also can shoot the shoot the three. And then you've also got Karis Levert, who provides a little bit more of that on ball ability. But yeah, like as, as far as the um as far as the possible options for Cleveland uh, at that at that small forward spot, you know, there there's a lot of interesting things in terms of you know, the, the Knicks have been able to play um, Brunson and quickly together, right? And in certain matchups, that might be a problem just because you're going with a small matchup. But against the Cavs, I think they can do that quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think in, in that particular matchup, I think that you're going to be okay. Um, I, I feel like if you're doing that, it's to try to match the firepower, though, right? Like if you are playing Brunson and and quickly together. Because, yes, holding up against a Garland... Um, Mitchell backcourt, or if it's Garland and Rubio, or Rubio and Mitchell, or if we're bringing the Karis Avert, you know, even though he's more of the three, like, I think that works, but at the same time, you are, I don't know, it's your offense better back up the reason why you're doing that, because now you've given yourself more of a license for your bigs to have to back up your perimeter defenders, and thus potentially put themselves in foul trouble, you know, at the hands of a Garland or a Mitchell if they're able to get past Brunson and quickly. And Brunson's a, a capable defender. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with him at all. He's going to get after it. He's going to play difficult. But, like, Garland and, and Mitchell, this is what they do in terms of, like, their professional scores at this level. And and I think both of them are going to possibly get the better of Brunson and whatever individual match that they have. So now you're shifting the defense over, trying to compensate for that. Either if you got your bigs playing deep drop, that's going to give you, you know, those floaters that Garland's so good at, you know, the all the way to the middle penetration that Mitchell excels in, or the pull-up jumpers, right? Um, and I don't know if quickly and Brunson's collective offense is enough to offset the defensive weaknesses that they potentially expose themselves to by not having more size in the backcourt. Um, 
with Cleveland, I mean, this is how they played. You know, it would be an adjustment for the Knicks to do that. They can definitely get away with it, do the defensive versatility of Brunson. But for Cleveland, this is how they play. They have their 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 two bigs and either Isaac Okora or, you know, a Karis Avert kind of helping alongside Mitchell and, and, and Garland. And I feel like it would probably be adjustment that could work for the Knicks, but it's kind of bold late in the game, in my opinion. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I will say, though, that I think quickly, you know, yeah, uh, Grimes does provide a little more size than quickly does, but I've been really impressed with quickly's defense this season as well. So I don't think it's like a huge, you know, if you if you put quickly in for Grimes, I don't think that's a huge drop off. Although, yeah, as you said, it, it does make them a little smaller. Um, the The interesting thing for me is with Isaac Okoro, because. In this particular matchup, you know, you would think, okay, well, you don't want to put Garland or Mitchell on the likes of Jalen Brunson, right? And Brunson was able to, again, put up 48 in the last meeting. So let's have our defensive specialist, right, go on Brunson. But I don't know if Okoro is uniquely suited to deal with what Brunson can do. I, I think, uh, you know, Okoro is a good effort defender and he's he's got some athleticism to him, but um, you know, Brunson is so fundamentally sound and crafty that I feel like that's going to be an issue for Okoro. And again, you, he takes away so much from the offensive end for the Cavs that I wonder if a guy like Osman might just be better. And if the Cavs would be better suited saying, you know, Brunson, Brunson might go off in this series, but if we've got enough offense where, you know, the, the Knicks are going to be punished if they, blitz or trap Mitchell or Garland then uh, you know we can we can outscore them I agree with you I don't think there's a whole lot of high level analysis to add to that I think that at the end of the day like and I I don't want to shift over but this is how I feel like I, I do think the Cavs have the advantage in, in multiple respects I think the Knicks have to you know I think they're going to get a good game in from Jalen Brunson I think he'll have a solid series uh you know they don't have the guards to really limit him um, I do think if you put Isaac Okoro on him, that might be an issue, but then that would mean that things have really gone wrong for the Knicks if Emmanuel Quickly's not getting off or R.J. Barrett's not, you know, playing well. And he's someone that I don't think I've mentioned enough. Like, I think he's more of an X factor. Um, I know you haven't asked the question, like, down 0-2, like, you know, what would the, what adjustment would I have? Um, I would go small if I'm the Knicks. Slide R.J. to the four. Round to the five. Get a much quicker unit out there. Really try to exploit the guards, uh, the backcourt of Cleveland and then draw their bigs out because RJ definitely has a quickness factor. He shoots the three just enough and not really fond of his outside shooting. Obviously been up and down for him, but definitely better at the four spot than at a traditional four if you have a Randall at the four and Mitchell at the five. You know, um, I think you could put Randall at the five where body-wise he holds up well enough, I think, against both Allen and Mobley while also drawing, opening the floor, keeping the floor spread offensively. RJ at the four and then run a three-guard lineup. Again, it's bold, but if you're down low two, like you're trying to get desperate. I think that you can then kind of make the offense more of like a free-flowing track me and maybe, you know, force the Cavs into adjustments they don't want to make. Right. And then you can just, yeah, you can just, if you're going small, you you raise up Josh Hart and Quickly's uh, minute totals, right? And, uh, you know, Tom Thibodeau, not afraid to uh, play guys 40-plus minutes, not only in the postseason, but in the regular season as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I will say, though, about the Knicks potentially staying big and the, the one issue that that could cause for the Cavs is on the offensive glass. The Knicks this mm-hmm. season uh, are second in the NBA. They rebound uh, 31.3% of their misses in the half court. And the Cavaliers, not a terrible defensive rebounding team, 
but they allowed 27.5% offensive rebounds in the half court, which was 18th in the NBA. So if there's one thing I think about like the Knicks staying big that could, that could end up being in their favor is getting those second chance opportunities. Cause as good as Jared Allen is as an offensive rebounder, I think he's not quite as adept on the defensive glass. No, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think that that's something they can exploit. I think if you're down 0-2, though, like, you need to shift in a different direction, whether you're not able to, you know, maybe maybe Cleveland is just scoring so much, and then you get bigger to kind of get more rebounds, slow the game down more, junk it up, kind of go back in that 90-style Knicks. I'm thinking if they're down 0-2, the Knicks just weren't generating enough um, offensive opportunities for themselves, not because of the Cavs, you know, overwhelmingly strong defensive aptitude, but more because the Knicks just weren't able to convert shots. You know, we're, we're just out, we're a subpar outside shooting team, whatever the case may be, like not working out to their favor. But no, I agree with you. That's another way they can go as well. Lean all the way into just using size, physicality, and just grinding out the game, which I think would work against a Cleveland team that doesn't really, I mean, they don't thrive on physicality. Like, they can play that way, but that's not their game. You look at Mitchell, you look at Garland, you look at all of them. Like, Isaac Okoro is probably the one guy you look at as, like, somebody who would probably thrive in that game. And even then, I say thrive relatively because he prefers the type of game, but offensively, it's not like he's going to, like, live and prosper. And he doesn't prosper in a, in a free-flowing offense. Yeah, so uh, my, uh, my O2, if the Cavs get down O2 in Cleveland at home, uh, my, my adjustment, I think, as, as Bickerstaff would largely come down to a, how we're, how we're dealing with, you know, if if we're down 0-2 because the Knicks have just been scoring at will, uh, you, you'd obviously have to consider sending, you know, mixing up your coverages defensively, whether that's switching more against uh, against Brunson or Randall or blitzing Brunson uh, and and making the, the screener make a play uh, on, a, on a four on three on the backside. Uh, but offensively, I think the big the big adjustment, or I guess personnel wise, the big adjustment bigger staff can make is again at that uh, at that weak spot, right? That three spot. Um, and I didn't even bring up the uh, another possible option there, which is Danny Green, who they acquired, uh, even though he hasn't really been a part a part of the rotation much. But I will say that I think that one of those last games of the regular season where the Cavs were sitting everybody, I think Green hit five or six threes. So uh, there's a there's a small chance that Danny Green still has something left in the tank. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Corbin, uh, for those of you that can't see him, obviously, uh, he uh, just uh, had the, the smallest uh, little difference between his thumb and, and ring finger there. Uh, but uh, the um, yeah, the, the main thing Bickerstaff, I think, can do there is just decide, OK, if you know, Okoro is not shooting the basketball well, or they're just laying off of him and he's killing our offense, then, you know, if, if we have to sit Okoro, we sit Okoro, right? If, uh, if Levert doesn't have it going, you know, maybe we'll, we'll just go all in on Dean Wade. Um, so, or Chetty Osmond. So those are, those are the main things for me, but, uh, yeah. So Corbin just getting down to the last couple of, uh, couple of questions here, who would you say is, the the X factor in this series. RJ Barrett. RJ Barrett. I'm gonna say RJ Barrett because all this time we're talking about the Knicks offense. I mean for the Knicks, I'm gonna say RJ Barrett. Um all this time we're talking about the Knicks, how healthy is Julius Randle? What is Jalen Brunson gonna bring to the table? Maybe we'll bring up Emmanuel quickly. But RJ Barrett is someone who I, I talked about him a little bit ago, um I think it was yesterday. I'm forgetting when I talked about him. He is averaging in my mind 
Andrew Wiggins numbers. Like his career is playing out very similar to Andrew Wiggins, where he's just like shot finisher, uh, not an overly efficient one. Um, one who doesn't do uh, a lot of playmaking uh, at all uh, comes with a high pedigree just from his college, high school college days, but hasn't seen that translate into the NBA uh, in a consistent fashion. And maybe is better off playing a role of an ancillary player like we see Wiggins doing Golden State. But unfortunately, that role is not here now. Um, but if you look at him for the, even this season, uh, nineteen five and two, like you know, for his career, eighteen five and two on forty two percent shooting. 34 from three, like it's kind of right there. You know what I mean? Well, so and, he can... and he's, he's the type of player too, that I feel like, you know, there, there's some guys, I feel like Gordon Hayward is the type where he averages 17, five and five. And he basically puts up 17, five and five every game. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, RJ Barrett, he's kind of the opposite of that, right? It's like one game, he yeah. puts up 35 and then another game, he'll have a two for 13 game where he puts up four points. Oh, I was just looking at his most recent one. So we had a, a four for 13 game, uh, 12 points against the heat. Uh, six for 17 game against the Cavs, then 11 for 25 game, 0 for 9 from 3 for 28 points against the Pelicans, then 18 point game, 7 to 16 shooting against the Pacers. And like, this is all up and down for him. And this, like you said, emblematic of kind of his career. So I think if he steps up, if he's taking smart shots, if he's playing good defense, shooting the ball reliably from three, you know, can be that, that irritant at that wing defensive spot that you can maybe throw on, not maybe, but throw on a Donovan Mitchell. They're on a, on a, on a, on a uh, excuse me, Darius Garland. Like, he's my, the X factor for me, for New York. Because if he's able to elevate his level of play, I think the Knicks are better for it. It relieves some pressure from Julius Randle. It relieves some pressure, pressure from Jalen Brunson. And it helps him out in totality. Yeah, I think that's a great call. Especially because, you know, the Cavs are uh, number one in the NBA in terms of, or sorry, second best in the NBA in opposition field goal percentage at the rim at 62.4%. And, you know, I talked about how Randall a lot of times can, when he gets hot, he's relying on perimeter shooting. Jalen Brunson, crafty mid-range scorer. The guy, I think, for New York that really is kind of reliant on getting to the rim and having success there is R.J. Barrett. So it's going to be a tough series, I think, for him, even though, yeah, he might have a favorable matchup at times, depending on what the Cavs do at that, at that three spot. But uh, my, my pick for my X Factor is going to be Evan Mobley. For the for the Cavaliers, okay, sir. I think uh, on both ends he's going to be really important. We already talked about his ability to potentially deal with Randall in isolation. You know, when Randall's off the floor, how well can he? You know, say if Obi Toppin is playing and Mobley's guarding him, how well can he leave Toppin and muck things up for the Knicks around the basket? And then offensively, you know, I I, I do think New York, given that we talked about, they're probably going to be in a drop most of the time. They're going to have to slow down Garland and Mitchell by, you know, leaving some of the Cavs' other players. And sometimes that'll be Mobley if he's spotted up in the corner. So Mobley, not necessarily with three-point shooting, but whether it's three-point shooting or attacking closeouts and making the next play, right? The big-to-big passing to Jared Allen. He's going to be a vital connector for the Cavaliers' offense. 
Yeah, I think he will. I think he's someone that if his confidence is on his shooting, you know, his ability to space the floor there, his ability to be uh, aggressive offensively, and 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 what he can do in terms of act, playing off the of actions from Garland specifically, but also from Mitchell, are going to be big. There's a lot of versatility he brings in the offense on the floor that hasn't been truly realized, and it won't all be realized in this series either. But if they're able to put most of it together or pieces of it together for this series, I think can be really big uh, for the for the Cavs and can be a backbreaker for the Knicks. All right, Corbin. Well, we've we've talked this one out quite extensively. Let's hear what's your uh, series prediction for this one. I'm going to go Cavs in five. I like what Cleveland brings to the table. I think their offense is really electric, and I think they bring just the right amount of, of suffocating length um, to make things difficult. And I just, I mean, if, if, if Randall is healthy, then, you know, I change things up a little bit. If Randall's healthy, I'd probably say Cavs in six. But I still think he's hampered. The ankle is a rough thing to deal with, especially with the type of player that Randall is. And we saw him a, a tough postseason last year as well. Put a lot of pressure on Jalen Brunson. I think the Knicks get one good, classic, scrappy weekend game over Madison Square Garden. Uh, definitely good to see that happening where they get a win. Um, but aside from that, I, I think Cleveland. I think Cleveland takes it. Yeah, talk about uh, two terrific uh, fan bases. The the atmosphere I think is going to be absolutely electric in both Cleveland and New York. Oh, no doubt. But uh, yeah, so I'm going to go Cavs in six. I, I I agree with a lot of your points and and. Also, you know, Tom Thibodeau, again, does not have the greatest postseason track record. I don't necessarily um, have a ton of faith in Bickerstaff as a postseason coach yet either because we haven't seen a lot. That's fair. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I I also agree with you that I'm probably picking Cavs in six instead of Cavs in seven in part because of the Randall concern. If I knew he was 100%, you know, I I might be closer to thinking Cavs in seven, but – uh, yeah, I, I I think this is going to be a really uh, really competitive series, and it should be it should be pretty fun. But let's uh, let's move on then to uh, to the one I know that you're excited to discuss, Corbin, uh, because it's uh, dealing with your Los Angeles Lakers, and that is the two seed Memphis Grizzlies taking on the seven seed Los Angeles Lakers. A terrific uh, play in game, uh, a little bit ugly, but uh, really fun that they they were the Lakers were able to knock off the Timberwolves to secure that seven spot. Looking at the bios for these two teams, Memphis, who uh, I will take control of as Taylor Jenkins, they are 51 and 31, 11th in offense, second in defense, third in net rating at plus 5.0. And the, the Lakers and Corbin slash Darvin Ham, 43 and 39, 20th in offense, 13th in defense, 17th in net rating at positive 0.4. But the, uh, the Lakers, you know, made that, uh, made that trade deadline acquisition that uh, really changed the sort of the fundamentals of this basketball team. Regular season matchup wise, the Lakers won two of three. But again, like I talked about at the outset, uh, we didn't really get to, to see any matchups with both of these teams at full strength. And the Grizzlies will not be coming into the series at all full strength because uh, they will not have Steven Adams and they will not have Brandon Clark. But uh Corbin, you know, I know you're obviously excited about this as a fan. And so what sort of uh, excites you the most getting to watch these two teams uh, go at it here in a couple of days? I think for me, it's the match of the old guard and the young rising team, right? I think the Grizzlies have been a team 
that's been climbing, you know, over the last couple of years, really making noise for good and bad reasons, you know, kind of picking up around there. And I think with the Lakers, listen, they're, they're a prideful team, you know, started from a 2-10 and 10 start, a 0.3% chance of making the playoffs, of scrapping and fighting and playing basically playoff-level basketball for the last six weeks of the season just to get themselves to this point. It's going to be very exciting to see them play. You know, LeBron James, Anthony Davis are in a position where not ideal, you know, playing a team in Memphis that can definitely kind of bring that that the weaknesses to the table um, or that can definitely bring strength to the table that are weaknesses for the Lakers, excuse me. But at the end of the day, I'm excited to see how it all unfolds. I think that the, the chess match of the two teams – the, styli- the stylistic differences of the two, the different adjustments that I expect both teams to make, you know, as the series goes on. And more importantly, the way LeBron James continues to gear himself into form as he's done historically through the first round. Is he able to do that again one more time here? We don't know. It's been a year and a half, almost two years now since we've seen him play in the playoffs. So um, this will be fun to watch for sure. Yeah, one of the things that was important, not only for the Lakers to secure a spot in the playoffs, but then winning that first play-in game also gave them four days off ahead of game one. I believe game one of this series is on Sunday. Is that right, Corbin? Yes, Uh, it would be. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Game one's on Sunday. So for a guy like LeBron, especially who, you know, probably isn't quite 100 percent, getting four days off is a pretty big deal for him to get his body right. Absolutely. Same for AD. Yeah. Yep. AD as well as, uh, you know, he was holding his shoulder and right shoulder, I believe at mm-hmm. times in that play in game. So hopefully that's nothing. Too yeah. And Dennis Schroeder, I forgot. He has a, um, I mean, he's been a big part of the Lakers bench unit, right? And he's playing with a neck injury, um, an ankle injury. And I think he had some to his Achilles as well. So Achilles all this rest is, believe, yeah. Yeah. So all this rest is going to be good for them. Um, and, uh, you brought up though, that it's, uh, you know, a uh, battle of the the young guard versus the old guard, and there's some some clashing styles here as well. I think one of the things when I was looking through uh, some of the statistics on these teams that really stood out, um, you know, in large part because of John ja Morant, the Memphis Grizzlies are number one in transition frequency in the NBA, and the Lakers are 28th in the NBA in points allowed per transition possession. So, uh, you know, and Obviously, on the offensive end, the Lakers are going to be attacking the rim a bunch. 37.5% of their shots at, are at the rim, which is second most in the NBA. But the Grizzlies, in large part because of Jaron Jackson Jr. and his amazing shot blocking, are number one in limiting opponent percentage at the rim at 62%. So a lot of this series, I think, is going to come down to, okay, the Lakers are forcing the issue inside. Can they finish their layups? Can they get the offensive rebound and put it back in? Or is Jaron Jackson Jr. going to be able to, A, stay on the floor and avoid foul trouble, prevent those shots from going in, and then the Grizzlies able to get Ja out going the other way? That, I think, is going to be really one of the most important elements of this matchup. It most definitely is because, you know, you have a team and Lakers have been a very stout defensive team. I think they've ranked 12th defensively overall. Um, They were third, you know, in allowing those in in points. um, They were third on the end of the floor in terms of allowing those points to come in transition. But like that defense, man, it's not super great in transition. That's kind of a weakness there. And we know the Grizzlies can't run. The Lakers will, too, I'm sure 
you know, opportunistically and, and when possible. Um, but you know that you have a lot of more deliberate ball handlers for the Lakers. You know, LeBron James is definitely going to slow it down. D'Angelo Russell's not really a speed demon on that end of the floor, right? Austin Reeves plays with a different set of pace. The only guy who's really going to bring that pace is Dennis Schroeder. And he's a little hampered by injury. We'll see how quickly he's going to be able to operate. So, um, yeah, I definitely think it's going to be a very important thing to realize because uh, Desmond Rain and John Morant were ranked 5th and 7th, respectively, among individuals in transition points per game. Desmond Bain gets you about 6.6, and John Morant just under that, actually. So those guys can get there um, on the break. And I think that makes up for what I consider a lackluster half-court game and very, very bad uh, stationary outside shooting outside of, like, one guy on their team. Yeah, and again, this is where, you know, not having Steven Adams offensively and even a Brandon Clark offensively is going to hurt them in the half-court. You know, they're going to have to rely on the likes of uh, – um, Santi Aldama and uh, also off the bench, you know, a guy like David Roddy, uh, who has shown some signs down the stretch of the season, but, you know, inexperienced, of course. Uh, so that's going to be that's going to be really interesting. I'm curious as far as the the matchups go. You know, I, I know you love your Corbin, you're a big fan of D'Angelo Russell. But we saw in the play-in game against Minnesota, right, that he was struggling and Dennis Schroeder ended up coming in and really being the hero of that game. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is another series where it's a Dennis Schroeder series as opposed to a D'Angelo Russell series, in part because, you know, although he's not an ideal defensive option on a guy like John Morant, I feel like Schroeder is the Lakers' best choice there. No, I would agree with that. I think at point of attack, Schroeder is definitely the best they have in terms of being, you know, bringing his quickness, bringing that dogged intensity, you know, up and down the court, all of that. I actually do think, though, that it could be a D-Lo type of, uh, of of series. And I say that not defensively because, heavens, no, that's not going to be the case. But offensively, uh, John Morant is not a very good defender, you know, and I think he's someone that uh, we saw this in last series, I think pointedly. Uh, by Pat Beverly, uh, I think it was game four or five, where he went like a mini 10-0 run, was just getting past John Morant relentlessly and, and and scoring. And mind you, it was a nice little run of like going at Ja, but it highlighted like, wow, no, he's kind of a weak link there, you know? Um, and, and, you know by, and what that does is, yes, you're not going at Ja like, oh yeah, mano y mano, but what that does is that forces your foul-prone big Jaron Jackson Jr. to have to come help out, right? Puts him in action. That could possibly compromise him. If you get him into foul trouble, which isn't very difficult, unfortunately, then, you know, Lakers have a better chance attacking in Xavier Tillman, Asante Aldama, other players who aren't necessarily as intimidating, you know, around the basket. Um, and that's something that I think that um, what Dennis Schroeder can do to John Morant and D'Angelo Russell, different ways. Dennis Schroeder, a lot of quickness, right? With, um, you know, shifty, able to penetrate at will. Like, that's something Schroeder can still do even at age 30, right? For that kind of guard, that's still something impressive. Where D'Lo is more shiftiness, is more craftiness. I mean, not shiftiness. It's more craftiness, is more, you know, subtle movements, head fakes, all of that, um, to really kind of manipulate John Moran as a defender to create shots and, and get to the basket and make things happen. So I do think that D'Lo, if his shot's going down and he can be hidden, you know, capably enough defensively, I think he has the the potential to make an impact in this game because of what he forces John Morant to do on the other end of the floor on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I agree that, uh, you know, when it comes to when it comes to point guards in general, and, and this was evident in the recent Grizzlies game against the Clippers and, and another guy that you really like, Russell Westbrook had a great 
a great game, maybe his best game of the season um, in, a, in, a, in a clutch win for the Clippers over the Grizz where he just went north and south and just got around John Morant. And Morant just, you know, as, as athletically gifted as he is, he just doesn't, uh, doesn't slide his feet, just doesn't put in the effort defensively, especially with those vertical drives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think, again, like speaking to what Schroeder does, I feel like that's a better attack going at Morant than someone like Russell, as you said, who's more crafty, shifty, looking to get to his jump shot. Um, so I, I do think on both ends, this series makes more sense for, uh, um, for Schroeder, but yeah, D'Lo should have some, should have some opportunities and he might have some big moments. He's, he's very capable of getting hot, of course, but uh, you know, on the other end, an interesting matchup as well is, the matchup with, you know, who's going to guard LeBron James. And I feel like it's largely going to be Dylan Brooks, who's one of the best defenders in the NBA. And LeBron, not quite as uh, as quick and shifty as he used to be. And so I, I do think that Dylan Brooks is capable of giving LeBron some problems. I mean, yeah, relatively. I think that, you know, he's a good defender. Um, I think the last time they played, he held him like 8-21 shooting. Uh, for 23 points, uh, Brooks is hardly a LeBron stopper. Um, I don't see that being something that's there. I think he'll 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 work hard. He'll bring all of his antics that he does. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be one of those things where I think he can, like, force LeBron into some uncomfortable shots. Uh, also think he can take himself off the game. Also think he'll be battling foul trouble as well. Um, thing will be nice. It'll be an interesting matchup between the two, but I hardly think LeBron is going to be like significantly hampered by by Dylan Brooks. His defense is great. Like that's great. It's LeBron James. Like that. that There's not a whole lot for me to bring up there in terms of how I see it. I think it's going to be something there in terms of the initial matchup and how they go back and forth. But no, no, I I don't see it as something that long term is going to be uh, a big issue. Maybe it will from a fatigue standpoint. Um, depending on how they force LeBron to play or how LeBron's forced to play, even if the stamina being as great as it is, you know, that type of relentless running, working for shots, all of that. But I think when LeBron wants to switch off, he'll be able to do that. I look at Dylan Brooks just not as foul prone as Jaron Jackson, but enough that I don't think it'll be a significant difference in that way. And yeah, I, that's kind of what I'm looking at. It's a matchup I'm looking at, one to watch for sure, but not something I'm, I'm necessarily worried about. If it's Kawhi on LeBron, then there's a different level of 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 defensive uh, mastery at work there that I think can really make James uncomfortable. Interesting. So I mean, yeah, I'm I'm a, I'd be a little more concerned. Again, this is you know I know I know it's LeBron James, but this is what 38 year old LeBron James. Uh, he's not mm-hmm. he's not he's still he's still an excellent basketball player, right? He's still like Thank in you. my mind a uh, you know probably right inside that top 10 in the NBA, but he's not the, you know, undisputed number one player in the NBA at this point. That's fair. That's fair. But I also don't think Dylan Brooks, like the number one, number two, number three, four, five, like disputed perimeter player. He's a good defender. I just don't think he's he's an all defensive level guy. You know, he may be, he might not make one of the teams, but I think he is an all defense level defender. That's my pushback. If he doesn't make one of the teams, like you, yeah, you're in conversation. But if you're all defensive player, like not all defensive level, like they're like, are you? Or are you not? You know what I mean? Like he's in the conversation there. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just saying, Garrett, I'm with you. But like also, like if I think of all, the, like I think of OG and Obi, there's no question. Like OG and Obi's there. If I think of like I'm trying to get other defenders, that's up there. If I say John the Kaminga, all defensive level player, 
I mean, you can have a conversation, sort of, not really. Like Corbin, the, the Grizzlies not, are the Grizzlies are second in the NBA in defense. And yes, and a big part of that is the actual player in defensive player of the year discussion, Jaron Jackson Jr. Yeah, but no, like, no defense is number two just with one person. No, no, I mean, that's very true. The Utah Jazz had some good defenses with just one person. But with that being said, <laughs> with that being said, I agree. Uh, I, like I said, I think Brooks is a good defender. I think he's a very good defender. I hesitate to say all defensive level defender. I think he's like just under that rung. I think some of it is, some of it is, well, antics to me. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not the biggest Dylan Brooks fan. I think for his analysis, I don't watch. And when I say I'm not the biggest Dylan Brooks fan, I feel like some of his. He's a very good defender. He's a very good defender. I just think there's a difference between a very good defender and I don't know, Tobias Harris, or a very good defender and Chris Middleton, and a very good defender and LeBron James, 38 year old LeBron James battling a foot injury. Like I, I, even with all those qualifiers I'm throwing up there. I think he'll do a decent job of, of, of working to make things difficult, but I, I hardly am as worried as I think you think we should be about this. I mean, we'll, I, I, we'll circle back after game two. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm not suggesting that he's going to like shut down LeBron. No one. Okay, good. I'm, I'm, about, I'm like, I don't know what you're, what you're insinuating here, good sir. But, uh, no, no one shuts down LeBron. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe make him a little bit more inefficient than you would you would expect. You know, as you said, like the the last matchup going eight for 21, stuff like that on an occasional game where it's like, you know, LeBron isn't clear and far and away the best player on the court in part because of Dylan Brooks's impact. That's um, fair. I can I can I can agree with that. I can. Yes, <laughs> I can accept that. Gary. <laughs> and, and yeah, like I do think it's going to be it's going to be vital for Jaron Jackson Jr. to stay on the floor. And, you know, the. The thing that another matchup that I think is going to be interesting is who does he start out on? Does he start out on Vanderbilt so that he can sort of roam off of him and muck things up? Um, you know, but Vanderbilt, unlike some just like your your uh, Rudy Gobert's if they're in the dunker spot, right? Vanderbilt can catch it. He can make a play. He can handle it. He can pass it. Um, so it's a little bit tougher to um, to just completely ignore him. Uh, but, uh, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. has made a tremendous impact around the basket and the Lakers, Lakers live at the basket. Right. So it's going to be a battle of, OK, who can who can uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. guard and be able to ignore? And then also, you know, can he stay on the court? You know, he only played 28 minutes a game this season because of foul trouble a lot of the time. And the Lakers are going to attack the rim relentlessly. And is he going to be able to, you know, stay out of foul trouble? And because, you know, as you said, a big part of the reason why Memphis is number two on defense is his presence. He's a defensive player of the year candidate. But if he's only playing 24 minutes a game in this series because of foul trouble, uh, I I think the the Lakers have a serious chance at an upset. Yeah, it's very possible. I think that you're right. Like, that's going to be the biggest thing for me. Because if Jaron Jackson Jr. stays out of foul trouble, then all of a sudden, Dylan Brooks' ability to make things potentially unpleasant for LeBron become that much bigger of a deal. Because now LeBron can't maneuver directly. We've seen LeBron get packed. I mean, as he's gotten older, especially, the lift isn't there. You know what I mean? These perimeter defenders are, are these um, interior defenders are just that good. And Jerry Jackson Jr. is one of the best. And also, let's not forget, like, 
the Lakers and Grizzlies are both bottom 10 three-point shooting teams. Like, that is not how their bread is buttered. That's not how the sausage is made. So there's going to be rebounds to go around when they do shoot those threes, right? Now, to be fair, Jaron Jackson and Dylan Brooks have both been shooting the three better as of late. I think Dylan Brooks is like mid-30s right now. The last month, Jaron Jackson actually low 40s. But like, it's not their nor you know I, I expect some regression to the mean um and the lakers although they've improved significantly since the trade deadline in acquiring of course d'angelo russell and malik beasley um deal has been hot and cold and beasley is more of a volume guy than like a registered guy who's gonna like knock down like seven out of ten you know what i mean that's not really his game so i definitely think that that'll be a thing um but yeah going back to jaron jackson that's kind of the big deal right if he's able to stay there and and, and patrol the paint going to be a problem. Uh, if he's not, all of a sudden, you look at how thin the Grizzlies actually are in the front court right now because Santi Aldama will have to play more minutes because you are missing Brandon Clark. Xavier Tillman will, will be pressed into more service as well. So that'll be a thing. And, and if you think about it last time um, that the Grizzlies and Lakers played, I think it was the January 20th game, you brought up Russell Westbrook having one of his best games off the bench. He did. But also, um, Stephen Adams and Brandon Clark combined for 36 points and 27 rebounds. And so I think it's funny that, like, all those guys are gone. But on the Grizzly side, it's a little bit more impactful because, yeah, Adams might actually be able to stay in this matchup some. You know, I don't think he'd be playing that much, you know, switching on LeBron or crazy and everything. But in terms of being able to be big, you know, rebound, like, like he could get a good 10, 15-minute stint, but you don't have that size anymore, right? And then Clark, Clark really causes the Lakers issues historically. And, and you don't have that all either. So it's imperative that Jackson stays on the floor because after that, you know, Aldama – Tillman, these guys are still good, um, but yeah, they're think, not really. I think I think Tillman can hold his own in this matchup. I think he's you know he's somebody that you know he might struggle a little bit going up against Schroeder, which I think that could be an interesting sort of coaching chess match, right? Of like um, you know if Tillman starts and Schroeder's coming off the bench, he might not have to face much of uh, of, of Schroeder's vertical driving game. Um, but like I think if if yeah if you don't have a lot of that quick twitch athleticism that speed I think Tillman can can hang in there because he's strong he's big he's fundamentally sound. Um, I, I I push back just a touch. I agree with you. I think Tillman's not going to be put off the floor by any stretch. But also like Anthony Davis has been piling up monster numbers the last couple games against the Grizzlies. We're going back into last season like just monster numbers and and some of that is on Jaron Jackson, which is something. Some of that's on Brandon Clark. So I'm not on Xavier Tillman. And I'm saying, if you go from, like, you're ranking your defenders, Xavier Tillman positionally sound great, you know, big enough body, great. Um, that's not something you want to have long-term on either end of that. Like, in terms of AD might be the one matchup that, that can exploit that, potentially. And I, I could definitely see it with Tillman as, as, as much as he brings to the table there. I think that shooter's definitely a weakness for sure, although I doubt, like you said, it's going to be a major thing the Lakers will go to, to to pull him out the game. But I would be worried about that matchup with Davis because – like I said, if you just look at the most recent nines he's had, you know, 30 and 22, 28 and 19, 35 and 9. Like, like just, he's had good games against the Grizzlies in general. Um, and even if we allot that some of that is with Jaron Jackson out for foul trouble, well, then who's coming in for him? You know what I mean? Like, that that's more of my thinking there. Yeah. Um, the... The, the fascinating element of this being a 2-7 is normally you would say, okay, well, the two seed historically is going to have a lot more talent than the seven seed, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say at full strength, that is the case here. But the Grizzlies are not at full strength, right? <laughs> they literally don't have two of their best three big men. 
in Stephen Adams and, and Brandon Clark. So they are, you know, lacking a lot of depth and they sacrificed some depth in the offseason as well, losing Kyle Anderson and losing DeAnthony Melton, right? And so they're trusting the likes of, of David Roddy and John Conchar a little bit more. And they, they acquired Luke Kennard, but can he stay on the floor defensively? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, the depth-wise, you know, I don't think the, Le- the Lakers have a ton of depth. They definitely improved their depth at the trade deadline, but I don't think they're at a disadvantage depth-wise here. And then you can say, okay, well, let's look at the top the top level players of this series. And you say, okay, Memphis, you've got the likes of, of John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain. Can those guys outplay your LeBron James and your Anthony Davises of the world? And as you said, uh, especially AD as of late, he's been playing excellent, excellent basketball. So it's gonna, it's going to be a, a, a. I'm very excited for this series, not only because I think it's going to be more competitive than your typical two seven, but also I think this is a great test for a guy like John Morant and to tell us like, okay, are you a top ten guy? Go prove it. You know, you you give a good point, Garrett. I mean, it's right there for the taking. And it's something that I definitely think can happen. I mean, and this Lakers team is ripe for that, right? Like, they are the perfect foil, right? Like, one, they have no one who can stay in front of Jaw like that. Two, we even bring up Desmond Bain like that. Desmond Bain can definitely be a guy who can cause some problems for this Lakers backcourt, right? Uh, I don't really like any one guy on him, and you can't clone Jared, Jared Vanderbilt. So, like, you know, you're looking at one of Austin Reeves, Dennis Schroeder, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, on a Desmond Bain. I like Desmond Bain in any of those individual matchups, right? Um, just in general. And then John Morant, yeah, if you put Jaron Vanderbilt on him, that's good. I think he can help in some respect. But um, when John Morant had that crazy third quarter against the Lakers, you know, Jared was there. Um, you know, like that's the thing. And also, you are putting more of your size there. Well, then you're relying a lot on AD and LeBron to have the beef up front, you know, against those other guys who, even while depleted, are still sizable. You know, so I definitely think it's going to be interesting. And I think that this is the series where John Moran can say, "Okay, like it's over. You know, we've seen these series before. We saw, you know, Seth Curry have that type of series. You know, I think it was against the Denver Nuggets like 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 back a couple years ago. Well, not a couple years ago, almost a dang near decade ago. Jesus, There you go. A whole decade ago, a couple years ago. But the point being is, like, we see these coming out parties where players make it known. Yeah, I'm I'm one of the greats or yeah, I'm, I'm the next guy here. And, you know. I think I've seen the Lakers expense. Like we've seen this happen. So this is the uh, prime opportunity. And I think it only gets John Morant's a unique guy that he will have an advantage at the guard spot. I think against most teams in the league, but like against the Lakers, there's like a specific unique, like gaping hole there. Yeah. And I think what's going to be interesting too, is how much Memphis elects to utilize the pick and roll and bring in, you know, Tillman and Davis potentially to the action. I don't think they should do that. Right. Because, you know, if it's Steven Adams, that's great because he's an excellent screener, excellent offensive rebounder. Right. But mm-hmm. Tillman, you know, solid screener, but he's, he's not a good athlete. He's not a lob threat. He's not a great rebounding threat. So bringing in a, a, a defender of the talent of Anthony Davis just makes things tougher for Moran. I would, if I'm Memphis and, you know, I'm, I'm Taylor Jenkins in this exercise, I'm relying a lot more on just letting John Morant attack in isolation. 
I, I would be with you there. I think that he has the advantage there. If I'm the Lakers, I'm definitely like playing off and trying to get him to shoot that three more. Um, but in isolation, like again, you, the Lakers only have maybe two defenders I would trust on on Ja, and and one of them is your best like wing slash big man defender, right? I, and that and that of course is your Vanderbilt. I don't really like. Either the matchups. I think Troy Brown Jr. can can give a game effort. He's my other guy I would offer up in that in that in that place. But yeah, you what are the Lakers gonna do? You know what I mean? Like there's only so much scheming you can do to make it uncomfortable. I would say go under drop coverage, you know, concede the three, um, and maybe the deep open two, then let him get all the way to the rim, put your big man in foul trouble and finish with a spectacular dunk. I would do that. But then Jock could get into a rhythm as well. And that can be an issue. Now I might is that like a given? Absolutely not. Like he's been a high volume misser of shots from outside, but I would take that and live with that as an advantage than the alternative, which he can probably get to anyway. Yeah. So, um, who do you think is, uh, you know, who, who do you got as a, as an X factor in this series, Corbin? <sighs> this was a tough one. Um, ultimately I put Troy Brown Jr. I think that for the Lakers, you you need LeBron AD to play amazing to win, right? Like, that's going to have to happen. That's a given. I was going to go with D'Lo, but I feel like that could be an X factor and he can be X out the rotation. Like, it could be one or the other. But for Troy Brown, look at a guy who, you know, through this season has been almost a quintessential 3 and D guy, you know? He's the one perimeter guy that if he's playing well and in a good position to at least make things difficult for Ja, it saves Jared Vanderbilt from having to take on that responsibility. The only other guy the Lakers really have to, to do that. If he's making his threes, you know, at a high level, it gives a le- one less person that the Grizzlies can cheat off of, you know, in terms of playing on him. And now you got to be honest with Troy Brown. Like, you got to be honest with D'Angelo Russell from outside. You have to respect that shot. And, he also has just a little bit of the the, and I think this is just from his college days and also early NBA days. Like he can play some point a little bit. He brings that size. He can do a little distribution. He can do a little rebound. Not seems to be that important, but the fact you have different guys in the playoffs now that can do different things, um, and his skill set is going to be I think pretty valuable for this Lakers team in this particular matchup uh, specifically. So I just want dogged defense. You know, two or three threes a night. Um, being able to you know keep the ball moving on offense and defensively, you know, keeping the team together on that end as you kind of play the point of attack. I think that he can really be an X factor for this team. And it's not even huge. I'm not saying he's going to have like a a 15 point explosion. It might be like eight points, three rebounds, two assists, but good solid defense. And you see the way he was connected on the floor. That is an X factor for me. And I think that's a player the Lakers need at that position. Yeah. And again, I would say he's one of the, you know, again, Schroeder, Schroeder is a solid defender when he's committed on that end, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's a different version than what, what uh, Troy Brown brings. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's a, he's a key guy for, for defending Desmond Bain, I would say. Yeah. Oh, no, I would agree across both guard spots. And also I would, um, I, I was going to make Schroeder my X factor, but I really think the injuries aren't fair to him, especially around his wheels, right? Like between the ankle, between the, like, that's a lot going on. Um, if he can play well and, 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 you know, is solid in that way, uh, and can hold up, then great. The only thing I put him as X factor is I just feel like for me, an X factor is okay. I just need a little extra out of you. And right now, if shooter can just play normal shooter right now, I'll be happy. You know what I mean? But I agree. Like he would be the other dual X factor there, but yeah, with the ability for Troy Brown to play both guard spots 
and and Schroeder not being able to do that against Desmond Bain, who physically just a much bigger athlete, and again, still keep the defense honest from three, yeah, I think he's my X Factor. My X Factor, and, you know, this is it's kind of cheating because you, you think of X Factors as, uh, you know, the, the role-playing types, but I'm going to go with Jared Jackson Jr. I, I think you were. <laughs> I feel like he's just so vital on both ends of the floor. You know, you mentioned that Memphis doesn't get up a ton of threes, but he's one of the key guys that uh, that creates some offense for them from downtown. Um, you know, I think his ability to play some in this series at the five, which will allow them to get more shooting on the floor, right? Um, when you don't have a, you know, Tillman again, he, he's a solid, he's a really good, like fourth big, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's, he's, you know, a below average starting center. So you don't want him playing 35 minutes in the game. So they're going to try to, you would, you would think they're going to try to get some minutes with Jaron Jackson Jr. at the five where you can bring in a David Roddy at the four potentially, because he's got some size and strength as a forward. Um, So, you know, him staying out of foul trouble on the defensive end, you know, forcing misses from the likes of AD and LeBron around the basket and, and making things difficult for them. He he is absolutely, he's absolutely vital in this series and it's, it's largely going to come down to him. And that's why, uh, you know, um, We'll, we'll get to the series prediction in a couple of minutes, but um, I'm still like, you know, as we're talking this, I'm still going back and forth, Corbin, just because you you have no idea. Like, is Jared Jackson going to play 36 minutes, score 20 points and have seven blocks? Or is he going to play 14 minutes and foul out? <laughs> I, no, it's true. And I, that's the thing. I, I, I think that makes he makes for a perfect X factor for that because you have no way of knowing. I tend to lean more to the negative side of that, but he could just as much pop out and, and, and give you more. All right. So what are, uh, you know, as, uh, as Darvin Ham in this series, and I, we didn't really touch on this too much, but given that I haven't really seen much from Darvin Ham as far as a postseason coach, uh, and we have seen a little bit from Taylor Jenkins, and I thought he did a good job last year for the Grizzlies in the postseason. I, I give the edge a little bit to Jenkins here, but as Darvin Ham say the Lakers get down, they go to Memphis and lose the first two. What are some uh, some potential adjustments that you would make to to turn the series around? You know, let's get let's get funky with it. Let's bring in Mobamba. You want to Bamba? <laughs> I feel like I feel like if if you're down 0-2, in my mind, it's not because of a scoring explosion from the outside for the Grizzlies. I think that they're more physical than you right now that, you know, let's say Dylan Brooks is defense player of the year defense on LeBron James and that Anthony Davis is being swallowed up from the sheer size uh, and relentless gang rebounding that the Grizzlies are doing and their ability to push the pacing in transition. So maybe you transition a little bit, bring in more size with Bamba, which sounds kind of extreme in my mind, but just to like initially just a 10 minute cent, you know, just to be out there. Um, maybe match up and absorb some minutes against Jaron Jackson and others, space the floor, which is something you can do. Um, the second thing I would do is go small and and, and try to match. It, it feels weird saying try to match the Grizzlies at their own game since they're better at it. But at the same time, you can force a lot of mismatches if you go with a uh, AD Vando LeBron um, or not AD Vando LeBron. Let's say you take even, let's say AD's out and it's a Vando LeBron um, Troy Brown and two guards. You know what I mean? 
or sub out AD for LeBron. You know, they're still a mobile unit. You still have some rebounding, but also now in transition, you're able to get some more favorable matchups. And those lead to doubles and those lead to wide open shots. You know, and if you can get some guys in rhythm, if Malik Beasley can get off, I actually don't even want Malik Beasley in the rotation, I don't want to say. I, I feel like he's a guy who opportunistically can shoot the three and would be helpful. But with the guards that you have between D'Lo, who I want to give a shot to, of course, between Dennis Schroeder and then also Austin Reeves, who was close to be my X factor. I feel like that, that's enough guard minutes already kind of swallowed up there. So, yeah, I think that would be my X factor. One is bringing in more sides off the bench and bringing in Bamba for a quick stint or two. Um, I doubt in real, in real life he's going to play much in this series, but I could just see that being another wrinkle to throw in there. Um, and then my second thing is just downsizing a little bit. Maybe even we get some LeBron at the five, which has its advantages and its disadvantages, but it forces the Grizzlies to match up with that. And I think that would be an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, and I think like, you know, um, the idea of downsizing also you could, the Lakers could could try D'Lo and, uh, and Schroeder together, potentially. And you could put, I know that's scary defensively. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm glad you saw it, yes. But, um, you know, you could, I mean, again, I think Schroeder is the best option on Morant. And then D'Lo, there are some possible hiding spaces on the Grizzlies. Like, you know, I wouldn't hate having him on Dylan Brooks, for instance, right? Yeah, that's not the worst. You're right. Actually, we might force Brooks into some of his more uh, more uh, Bane inhibitions in terms of, you know, <laughs> trying to, to think it's, his, it's Dylan Brooks' time. Exactly. So there, there are some opportunities, as you said, if the Lakers are – because, yeah – if they're down 0-2, it's probably because they haven't been able to score against the Memphis's and against the Grizzlies' second-ranked defense. Um, so yeah, downsizing, getting a, l- a little more shooting out there, which I, I would include Beasley in that again. If you can find, um, you know, if you can find some hiding spots, it, it gets difficult when you've got multiple of them out there, mm-hmm. right? Because um, then you probably are going to have one of them on a, the likes of a Bain or a Morant, but. One of them at a time and a D-Lo or a Beasley, you know, one of those guys, I think they might be able to get away with it in this series. So, uh, yeah, that is interesting. As far as uh, if if Memphis gets down 0-2, um, you know, if I'm Taylor Jenkins, I'm probably having a, a meeting with Jaron Jackson Jr. and telling him not to foul. Uh, but uh, the, um, the, the other thing I would say, too, is, you know, perhaps go just with with some of our more offense heavy lineups, maybe dust off canard. If we really are struggling offensively, um, perhaps playing Aldama more than Tillman, if Tillman really isn't, uh, isn't effective just to get a little more shooting, a little more offense out there in Aldama. Um, you know, again, I've, I've liked what Roddy has done. I like Conchar, you know, yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny that we're both suggesting if, if our teams are down Oh, two, potentially downsizing to, to spruce up the offense a little bit. But, yeah, it feels like this is going to be a defensive series. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's going to be a pretty series. Definitely going to be defensive-minded. Um, the chess match that's going to happen is going to be intriguing as well. And who steps up? Who has that, you know, four to from six from three or whatever the case may be to really make it interesting? Yeah. All right, let's get to your prediction. I, I'm still undecided as I'm asking this. So, Corbin, I'm going to make you go first. Wow, that isn't fair! Wow, I'll uh, I'll 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 go first on the last couple since I've had you go first on these first two. But uh, okay, 
Who do you okay. have uh, winning this one between the uh, the two seeded Memphis Grizzlies and the seven seeded Los Angeles Lakers? Um, I've gone back and forth on this for a minute um, because I I can I convince myself that Lakers got this. Then I go, do you see the Grizzlies in the way they match up? Like they're number two for a reason. Then I go, okay, but they're down some very key pieces. The loss of Brandon Clark's important. Then I go, but they got John Morant. Then I go, but AD was a beast. Like, it's a mess. Ultimately, at this time, right now, I'm going to go... I'm going to go Lakers in six. Even though I feel like I could wake up tomorrow and be Grizzlies in six. I don't know if it goes to seven. It very much could. Um... But I feel like either A, the Lakers are going to come and come with that requisite energy and LeBron's going to enforce his will and get better series goes along, AD's going to be a monster, or the Riz is going to make all of us look silly and be like, yeah, we're number two for a reason. It's a 2-7 matchup, and it's going to be what it's going to be. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're going to enforce their will, get out in transition, run the Lakers out of the building. Like, out of Memphis, out of LA, all the way over to Shannon's Sharp Studio. Like, it's going to be one or the other there. Um, I'm going to go Lakers in six. I just think at this point, they're healthier. I think that's a very important deal, and I, I just feel like with the individual matchup of LeBron they deep playing at the way that they can, I, I still I, I said I wouldn't go against those two if they're healthy playing at their highest level, and I think right now they're healthier and playing as close to that as we're going to get right now. Oh man, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm going back and forth still. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Like I, it's hard. I think I'm going to end up going. Just because of the way AD has been playing as of late is reminiscent of how he performed in the bubble, minus the jump shot. But he's been he's been playing at a really high level, like a top five guy in the NBA mm-hmm. the last few weeks. I think I trust the combo of AD and LeBron more than I trust John Jaron Jackson Jr. To see. That's what it came down to me for. Yeah, at least for the moment, right? Now Desmond Bain can also go off, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, Man, I'm going to go Lakers in seven. Ooh, okay, spicy. But, man, I, as you said, I could easily see it going the other way. And I brought up at the beginning the transition rim uh, battle where it's like the Lakers attacking Jaron Jackson Jr. at the rim, trying to draw him, uh, get him into foul trouble. I trust the Lakers to get them into foul trouble and I trust them to, to do well enough around the basket to hopefully keep Memphis out of transition enough to skate by. So yeah, I'm going to go Lakers in seven, but I do not feel good about it. I would not bet on this series. Oh, oh no, I'm not. I need, I need all the money I can get. I wouldn't do it either. I'm with you. I, I feel like, yeah, I absolutely would not do that either. I just, I agree. I think that it's just a really tough one by the end of the day. The body of work lies in LeBron and AD for now, and I might regret this. It might be something to look back and laugh at in, like, two weeks' time. But as of right now, yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, but, yeah, no betting money, Garrett. No, no, not not, not this series, at least. Yeah, and again, if, if Memphis was fully healthy or even just had one of Brandon Clark or Steven Adams, I would pick the Grizzlies. But <laughs> missing both yeah, of them honestly, yeah, I was gonna say you, is, is such a big deal. That's true. And if you had one, I might have to be with you. Like, I have no problem picking against the Lakers. I obviously have my own bias. But at the same time, like, as an analyst of basketball watching the games, you look at the matchups, you try to see what makes sense. And if the Grizzlies were fully healthy, 
um, it would make about as much sense as a number two seed facing a number seven. Like they're there for reasons, right? You well, know I think I mean? that's the perfect thing to say, right? Is if Memphis had this team that they're going into this series for a full season, they probably wouldn't be the two seed. If the Lakers had this full team that they've had since the trade deadline, they would probably be better than the seven. Exactly. Yep. So All things lot. being equal, this is the, yeah. This feels much more like a four or five to me than it does a two seven in a lot of respects. But I actually like that analogy. That's perfect. I would agree. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's get to the next one, which is the three seed Sacramento Kings going up against the defending champion six seed Golden State Warriors. I will act as the Kings and Mike Brown, and they have a 48 and 34 record first in the NBA in offensive rating, but 25th in defense, eighth in net rating at plus 2.4. The Warriors and Steve Kerr slash Corbin, 44 and 38, eighth in offense, 12th in defense, ninth in net rating, also at plus 2.4. So as far as the net rating is concerned, these teams are basically identical Corbin and you know the Warriors coming into this series with all the playoff experience in the world and the Kings with hardly any yeah it's gonna be it's a case of it's a case of you know the the young again it's almost as similar to the Lakers and Grizzlies uh series we talked about except the Grizzlies are a younger team that have been there the last couple of years these Kings are happy to be here First time in 16 years, light the beam. You know, we're, we're gone are the days of Sauskis, right? And, you know, <laughs> you know, just just all of that. Um, just the Costa Cufa's fun. Just all of it. You know, like, this is a team that is the real deal, um, at least in regards to Sacramento basketball teams of the last almost two decades. So I think that it's definitely going to be a case of the young upstart team and a team that's been here before, more established, and um, is looking to kind of get back where they were in terms of, uh, you know, um, Western Conference supremacy. Yeah, they're, um, as you said, like, you know, this team, first time in the playoffs in quite a while, I you know, they're, they're definitely happy to be in the postseason. You know, they had a celebration in Sacramento. They were very excited about it. Mm-hmm. I think Mike Brown and the team have done a good enough job, especially since they sort of wrapped up the getting into the playoffs early enough that in part because the Western Conference was was down this year, but they wrapped it up in early enough in the season that I think they they have been able to transition into, okay, well, we, we made it, but that's not all we want this season, right? And given the strength of the Western Conference, it would not shock me if the Kings were in the Western Conference Finals this year. You know, they have, again, they're, they're the best offense in the NBA. They're not an elite team. I don't think they're as good of a team as a typical three seed would suggest, similar to what we talked about with Memphis, given their injuries, that they're not probably as strong as a typical two seed. I would say the same for the Kings. And then the Warriors, you know, they've had all of these issues, of course, they had a terrible season on the road going 10 and 31, and they're going to be on the road in this series, and they're going to have to win a road game. But they're the defending champs. With Steve Kerr as their head coach, they have always won at least one road game in every series they've been in. Wow. And also, another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, they've been missing Andrew Wiggins for a good chunk of the last couple of months. 
And from all the reports that I've heard is that he is good to go. Uh, they, they apparently said that he looked terrific in a scrimmage in the recent scrimmage, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but, uh, you know, it's better than looking terrible in a recent scrimmage. Very true. Very true. That's Um, right side up. I love it. (laughs) But, uh, he looks like he will come off the bench and provide a little bit more size and potentially play between 20 to 25 minutes starting in game one. So, uh, you know, I think this Warriors team is a little bit better than your typical six seed, despite the fact that, yeah, all season long, it's been a little bit confusing. Why is this team so bad on the road? Yeah, that's true. I think that's one thing I've always been, I've been curious about all year. Like they've been inept on the road, regardless of healthy, not healthy, you know, whoever was in or out, the quality of the opponent, they lost to Charlotte, they lost to Sacramento, you know, like all of that. Yeah, very much so. It, It comes down to, just that road home difference, um, which I don't know. I very few teams had a worse home and away record or disparity than this Warriors team did, which is odd, fresh off of, you know, a championship team. But at the same time, uh, going back to Sacramento, like they're a fun team. They're a fun squad. They could easily make it to the Western Conference Finals. They are the most fun series I'm looking forward to watching. Uh, but they, they are new. They are 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 are, you know, the intricacies of the postseason, like other than Harrison Barnes. Um, oh, um, Kevin Herter uh, from Hawks teams, which, I mean, they didn't go very far, but at least he got some playoff experience. Oh, I think he got, a, he got an Eastern Conference Finals experience. He did. Sabonis has played a little bit. Oh, Indiana. The Pacers, yeah. Yeah. So you have some here and there. Um, I wish Malik Monk, but he was with the Lakers last year, alas. Oh, and, and, um, and Mike Brown, of course, very experienced postseason oh, coach. Of course, of course. But the collective, I mean, none of them hold rings. Like, the collective, like, like battle tested, like hardened type of of play that the Warriors can dig deep into is something that the Kings just don't have. Now, mind you, that's these are more intangible. It's not going to really be like what solves the series in my mind. Like, oh, the Kings were just so young. They're one. Of, they were one of the best clutch teams. You know, Darren Fox won the best clutch performance. Like he is the odds-on favorite to win the clutch performer of the year award. Like this Kings team is a solid squad. But I think that it's going to be a very interesting uh, mix between experience. Um, teams in pace ironically the warriors are number one in pace and the kings are number 12 but i think that's fun just where they are um offensive rating where the warriors are number 10 and the kings obviously like you said are first above all um in the half court offense where the warriors are still really good they're six the kings are second so like it's gonna be a fun like this type of basketball i'm beaming like like the be i'm beaming let's go <laughs> well and the kings you know they're they're number one in offense and when you look at like all of the different, all of the different offensive categories, right? Half court offense, transition offense, rim finishing, mid range shooting, three point shooting, they're great across the board. There's not really a single thing that you can look at and, and point to at this Kings offense that struggles. They, you know, they have a, uh, a, a an elite offensive center. They've got an elite ball handler shot creator in De'Aaron Fox, and they put shooters around them. And they've also got other guys in Malik Monk, in Kevin Herter that can, and even Harrison Barnes to a certain extent that can, they can also create their own offense at times. So this, this offense is absolutely legit looking at the regular season matchups. You know, they played on, uh, I believe the last day of the regular season and Fox and Sabonis didn't play and the Warriors ended up winning that one, but not a lot to take away from that. But the two previous encounters were, were close affairs. October 23rd, so really early on in the season, the Warriors beat the Kings 130 to 125 behind Steph Curry's 33 points. 
And then on November 13th, a, a little less than a month later, the Kings got the best of the Warriors, 122-115, with Sabonis going for 26 points, 22 rebounds, and eight assists. So in the two real matchups this season, uh, it's been a very competitive affair. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I think, like looking at the statistics from these two teams, um, you know, the Warriors with Draymond, with Kevon Looney, with that defensive system, they are, you know, number one in the NBA at eliminating opponents' shots at the rim. They Opponents shoot just 25.2% of their shot attempts or their field goal attempts at the basket. Mm. Um, but they are dead last in terms of uh, how many shots they allow in the short mid-range area. And the Kings are actually in part because of De'Aaron Fox one of the best in the league, second best actually at converting short mid-range shots at 48.4%. So that's going to be a fascinating element because you know that the Kings are going to go to that Fox a bonus pick and roll. You know, the Warriors might do a better job than most teams at stopping the Sabonis part of that action. But uh, given the their statistical profile, they might be one of the worst teams at stopping that De'Aaron Fox part where he can get to that 10-foot range and hit that little push shot that he's been really prolific at this season. Oh, yeah. I mean, he made a cue when I was watching some film uh, earlier today, a cue when he made uh, against the Warriors to kind of put them ahead for good in their victory over the Warriors, where Clay Thompson was on him. Um, you have to give De'Aaron Fox the space because he can get to the lane at will. And all it took was a little bit of a retreating step from Thompson, you know, dr- hard dribble jab kind of from Fox, and that led to a nice, neat 15-footer. And Fox has been very good from that range. And because you have to respect the speed so much, you have to kind of give him that space. And forget that. Like you said, even if the Warriors are, are focused on Fox or even focusing on the Sabonis actions, Brown surrounds Sabonis with, with a lot of shooters, right? Guys who can, you know, spot up and make shots, but also move around off-ball screens, relocate very similar to how the Warriors use both Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and form hubs that do two-man, you know, dribble handoff. So, like, he kind of picked up very, you know, much of the same schemes the Warriors have run with a similar schematic principle with players that are not Seth Curry and Clay Thompson, but can definitely perform a reasonable facsimile of that at their best. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that Mike Brown spent so much time as an assistant in Golden State is a really interesting wrinkle with this series. I think another fascinating element, too, is the matchup game, right? So if the Warriors are starting green and loony like they normally do, who is the one guarding Sabonis and who's the one guarding Keegan Murray, right? Mm. You would think you would put Draymond on Sabonis to have your best possible defender in that pick and roll action with Fox Sabonis, but then that puts Kevon Looney uh, in a situation where he has to defend a little bit more on the perimeter, right? And uh, it also... um, you know, if if you put Draymond Green on Sabonis with the, the intent to switch a lot of those actions, that opens up the possibility for Sabonis to get on the inside and get on the offensive glass, or potentially mash guys inside in his po- with his post game. Yeah, I agree. I think that gives you uh, the war. The Warriors have a few adjustments that they would have to make counteracting Sacramento offense that they can use. Also, you know. The Warriors usually being able to kind of prevent four switches by having the screen's defender kind of bump Sabonis in order for Kavon or Draymond to kind of get back in time. But we've seen the the 
Kings do wedge action, right? Designed the, the action to get Sabonis right in that low post position to make things difficult. And, you know, between the shooters they have and the individual shot creation, Kevin Herter can create his own shot. Like, not, you know, uh, definitely not his forte, but something he can definitely do. You know Darren Fox can off the bench. Malik Monk can as well. So for the Warriors, like, can you get away with playing your two best defenders on the floor at the same time? Like, how often will you be running both Draymond Green and Kevon Looney on the floor at the same time? I think is important to, to consider. Yeah, and then also, you know, they they brought back Gary Payton at the deadline in part because, well, in part to save money, but also in <laughs> part because uh, he was, uh, you know, he is a terrific perimeter defensive player. He did a great job on John Morant at times in that uh, Memphis series last year. And the Warriors have played a lot of DiVincenzo in that starting lineup, right? And maybe they'll stick with that. Um, Because again, Wiggins is going to be coming off the bench at least to start the series. So the Warriors typically will play another guard with Curry. Uh, But you don't necessarily want Curry expending so much energy defending Fox. So he's probably going to be on the likes of of a Kevin Herter or a Harrison Barnes. Um, But uh, yeah, how much does does Gary Payton get into the starting lineup? I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that Steve Kerr does right out of the gate is just start Gary Payton because he's, uh, you know, the, the easily the best option they have for the Kings most uh well I guess you can argue whether Fox or Sabonis is the uh the best offensive player on the Kings but mm-hmm. uh you know obviously Fox is an integral piece and somebody that is key if you're going to beat them you got to slow him down at least some exactly and you kind of jumped the gun on my next my little point because my adjustment for the Warriors if they were down 0-2 which I couldn't see is starting Gary Payton that might be something they do off the off the top but I definitely would like to have him in there from the beginning. From the jump, make things difficult for, you know, um, De'Aaron Fox and as the point of attack defender there and really free, you know, him, um, uh, free Steph Curry up to be more aggressive offensively. So that was actually what I had as my down 0-2 adjustment, but it could so easily work as well as the first thing. I, I don't think you let that bag out the hat. Let, let, the, let the Kings know that's coming and, and adjust for that when you have to. Yeah, and the the other fascinating thing about this series is that, and and another reason why the Kings' offense is so good, right, is because there's nobody in that starting lineup that is a weak link offensively. Everybody can make a play. Everybody can put the ball on the floor. They can shoot. They can finish. So there's nowhere to hide for Steph Curry. Again, uh, I've always felt that Steph Curry was an above-average defender and better defender than most people. Um, give him credit for but at the same time you know the Warriors offense runs through Steph Curry and despite the fact that he's one of the most well-conditioned athletes in the NBA you know putting him through the paces on the other end and making him work making him navigate screens making him defend on the post you know making him put in a substantial amount of energy on that end can have an impact and and can make the difference and maybe he'll he'll miss one or two shots short because of it. It's very much what I was saying when I was bringing up LeBron, right? Like, yes, great stamina for these guys. But, like, at the end of the day, LeBron is 38. Steph Curry's 35. Like, a lot of moving, a lot of physical, you know, activity. I'm not that the Kings are going to be this, like, physical, over-the-top, you know, grit and grind type of team. But at the same time, you're right. You can wear out Steph Curry prematurely. You can definitely take just a little off his legs that his next shot comes up short or he can't get the juice to go all the way to the basket. You know, like, like, yeah, those, those things do matter. And I think that's something that you can definitely uh, look at as, 
an option to try to tire out Curry to then see if that does yield you some dividends later on during the course of the game. Well, and, and looking at uh, things from from the defensive side of the ball for the Kings defending the Warriors, you know, the Kings obviously not a strong defensive unit. And uh, I mentioned that on the offensive end, the Kings have no weak links. Uh, they they don't really have any strong links on the on the on, in that starting lineup on the defensive end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, how they're going to slow down the Warriors enough, and and maybe maybe they don't. Maybe they they win this series by just outscoring them every single time, four times out of seven. I mean, I think I lean toward that more, but yes, <laughs> but, um, you know. It is half the game, so I feel like we should at least discuss it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they are going to probably, uh, you know, with Sabonis, they typically like to show high, right? And that's probably his, uh, you know, his best skill defensively is is mobility, and he's he's not very good at protecting the rim, dropping back, and making a difference at the basket. So they're probably going to show high. They're probably going to, at times, take the ball out of Steph Curry's hands and, uh, you know, make this team beat them with four on threes. And, you know, you, you probably just have to, to live with that uh, and, and hope that guys like Andrew Wiggins, like uh, Gary Payton III, um, and, and, and the like just miss some shots, right? But, you know, is there, is there any sort of defensive strategy that you think the, the Kings can go to outside of just blitzing that, uh, that Steph? Draymond pick and roll? Not really. I feel like, I mean, they don't have a whole lot there they can do. I would I would do a, maybe a, a, a blitz seems like the one thing that you can do. Uh, obviously, uh, in terms of personnel, Davion Mitchell. Like, yeah. against, like, he's six foot though. So, like, you're really only guarding Steph. And yeah, then, if Mitchell's out there, maybe instead of blitzing, you could go with a high show, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah. And that's something there. Yeah, exactly. But, like, aside from that, there's not a whole lot of options. I mean, Castle Edwards came out there. I'm not sure if he has the shiftiness to stay with the Curry in that way, but he's one of the better defender in ter- terms of value, right? I mean, their best defender just by default is Harrison Barnes, which it's not a, it's not a perfect fit. Like, okay. And he's really more of a wing guy, you know? But, like, the Warriors, I mean, put him on put him on Wiggins, and you have the battle of the, of the former and current warrior uh wings but aside from that you don't have a whole lot there right i think that you can maybe consider um putting uh keegan murray there keegan murray has good length i could see as maybe a, a potential disruptor maybe you can get a few rips reps on curry uh he's somebody that could potentially be switchable but it's hardly a strength of his you know what i mean like he's not like oh just throw him there it's just something that he probably can do um and i definitely think that that's only on like straight isolation or, like, help situations. I think you're not having him try to navigate screens or defending off-ball actions. That is so not going to work out well for you. So I feel the Kings are just at it. Like, I wish I could say there was a whole lot to break down. I don't feel like there is. They were bottom 10 defense. Um, I think according to cleaning the glass, uh, 25th, uh, non-garbage time defensive rating. Uh, they were bottom three half-court offense. Like, they just don't have the personnel to play good defense. And so, like... That's a problem, right? They allow the fifth most pain point, points in the league. So the good news is the Warriors don't score in the paint too often. I think apparently uh, they, the points that they score in the paint is the third lowest. Only the Mavericks and Nets scored fewer. But, like, point being, the Grizzlies, I mean, not the Grizzlies, the Kings at any point on the floor are one of the worst when it comes to defending. And so, yes, you take away the paint, that's good. Warriors don't shoot there. But any other place the Warriors do shoot is kind of an issue. So 
I, I wish there was more. I think I think you if you're if you're Sabonis, that's a big issue. I think he can only really do what two things when it comes to the well three I guess when it comes to pick and roll coverage, which is either you know stepping up to the level, or he's going to blitz like you said, or he drops. But drops is a distant third to me because dropping with Steph Curry and Clay Thompson or Jordan Poole, I, I don't think that spells the recipe to a long series if you're Sacramento. Yeah, and you know you can try you can try icing it, but I feel like Draymond Green is is too intelligent to too really smart. that strategy. They'll just rescreen and and get a good look for Steph. Um, but uh, you know you you brought up Harrison Barnes as their best defender. I would argue like I guess um, you know probably consistently maybe, but um, when uh, when they're when they're at their best, I still would say De'Aaron Fox is their best defender. Uh, oh, interesting. Star- in, in the starting lineup. Um, uh, but you know the the challenge there is you know do you want him defending Steph even if he's your best option and doing it and can do a decent job do you want him expending so much energy when you need his offensive production? Yeah, I mean, I I I, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously you would. I I don't know if I think Fox is a very important defender. I don't. I hadn't had him. In, I hadn't thought of him as like the best. So that's interesting there. But like he does bring. Good quickness and length, and yeah, I mean, obviously, if if that's the case, then no, you wouldn't, you know what I mean? But you don't really have much of a choice in that situation where you have a startlingly, like, lack of depth when it comes to defenders. And Davion Mitchell, you know, despite being undersized, good point of fat, a point, good point of attack defender, but he is undersized and also like feast or famine offensively. You don't really have a whole lot you can go off of. So like, if Fox is that great defender, well, like whoop de doo, man, let's get that hard. Hard, you know, hard, high, two-level basketball going on now because they need you on both ends if the Kings are going to have any, like, imagination of moving past this round. Absolutely. So uh, looking at um, looking at the uh, potential X factors here, who do you uh, who do you got in this in this matchup? Malik Monk. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I, I really wouldn't want oh. Malik Monk, but I, I think I think he and Murray for me. Okay. Keegan Murray, I mean, this is a young guy, his first playoff action. I think, like I said, his ability to, you know, in certain matchups, play good, solid positional defense, uses that length, um, uses sense of his, his, his fundamentals to kind of be a, a, a reasonable deterrent defensively. Offensively, knock down the, the threes that you're given, maybe create a little bit more off the bounce, be a problem, force the Warriors to shift their attention onto another guy. You know, let not have anyone hide on you. Um, but like, look, okay, we got to account for Sabonis. We got to account for Fox. Oh, maybe we got to shift over to, you know, Keegan Murray as well and, and, and kind of mix up some of the matchups. So if that means you do find yourself being guarded by a Seth Curry or something, go at it, force the issue, make yourself a, a player that the Warriors have to account for, which will then potentially throw their defensive sequences out of whack. I like that, especially given that, you know, again, Wiggins is not going to be starting. So their their lineup, even though they play Looney and Draymond, like they're, they're still kind of a small starting lineup without Wiggins out there when you have either Gary Payton III or uh, DiVincenzo in Wiggins' spot. So there will be opportunities, I imagine, for for some duck-ins for uh, – for Keegan Murray against smaller defenders, right? Some, some timely cuts uh, that, you know, there'll be games where, you know, the Warriors defense is not just going to let you uh, let you beat them the same way game after game, right? Like if De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis go off for 60 in game one, they're going to make Herter and Murray 
and those guys beat them from the outside in the next game, right? Like that's, I mean, that's just coaching 101, right? Is uh, you, you, if, if one strategy is failing, you don't just let, let them keep uh, beating you that way. Uh, so, so I, I, I do like that. Uh, I do like that call out for Keegan Murray. And I, I feel like as the season progressed and, and towards the end, we did start to see a little bit more playmaking from, from Murray, where you'd see him grab a defensive rebound and go coast to coast and make a play. He has that ability to do that. And I think that that's something that, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, right, we're not saying like break out Keegan Murray, you are a star, like go for it. But also, Again, it's it's the little things that he's able to do. He's a very fully fleshed out offensive player, you know, as a rookie. His game from all three levels is solid, and his ability to be able to uh, kind of enforce his will in spots, I think, will be integral for the Kings to really have some diversity in their offense in terms of forcing the Warriors to get out of their preferred defensive matchups. It's a it's not exactly a long shot. It's not a given, but it's something I think could kind of work itself out for the Kings in a positive way. Let me let me go into my uh, let me go into my X factor for um, for this series, and you know I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with Gary Payton. I think uh, you know again if you're able to slow down De'Aaron Fox in this series, if the Warriors are able to slow him down, I think they've got a great chance, right? I I have a good feeling that you know. Sabonis is going to struggle against the likes of Draymond Green and uh, and Kevon Looney. Like, and, and by struggle, I mean he's not going to be as efficient and as effective as you saw him during the regular season. I think those uh, those two Warriors bigs are really intelligent. They're going to know the scouting report right. They're going to play on his left hand and that right shoulder jump hook. Um, they're going to make Sabonis do some things that he's a little bit more uncomfortable with out there on the floor. So if they're able to also slow down De'Aaron Fox with the likes of a, of a Gary Payton, I think the Warriors are going to just have, have too much offensive firepower and, and are going to be able to win this series. So, Corbin, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so what, uh, what O2 in the series adjustments would you make as uh, – so you're Steve Kerr, correct, in this series? Yeah, so if, if you are the uh, – if you're the Warriors and – you lose that, you know, they like the game, they like the beam in games one and two. Mm-hmm. What are you doing in game three to, to turn the series around? Well, that, that brings me back to my earlier point. I'm, I'm starting, I, I would start Gary Payton. I think that 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 for me is the one I would do. I wouldn't do it offhand. One, tactically, I think that's just something I like to keep in the back of my, of my pocket just to have. But also, yeah, I'm putting him on, I'm bringing him off the bench. He's starting, we're going to do a probably, it might even start him in. Well, him. What about Wiggins? I would, you know, I'd probably go bold with it. I'd probably put, I'd probably put Curry and um, Curry and Gary Payton in the backcourt. I would put Draymond Green at center, and then run Kaminga with Thompson. Ooh, okay. And give it a little varied look. You know, you have a, a point of attack defender. You have a guy in, in in Draymond kind of orchestrating the defense on the back line. You have a guy in Kamingo who can guard your wings. You're able to put Seth Curry on the weaker matchup there. Um, and then Clay Thompson with his size can still be a reasonable determinant while also putting him on your, like, third, you know, 
best threat, you know, being able to still be a, a decent deterrent, also not having the pressure of your main guy. And when you just say all of your energy, Gary Payton, like take Fox out the game as much as you can and see how that goes. I think Draymond can do a good enough job with Sabonis. I think with Kaminga and, and Thompson, you have just enough athleticism down there, uh, specifically with, with Kaminga, to make things tough, to dig into passing lanes, to be active, and then go the other way. Yeah, I mean, obviously, GP and uh, and Kaminga are probably the two best athletes on the Warriors. So you're basically doing what you're just you're just throwing as much athleticism and defense around the Splash Brothers. I, I don't I don't mind that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I would probably amp up the minutes of Andrew Wiggins before I would uh, I would start Kaminga, but um, that's fair. But uh, yeah, Kaminga definitely has uh, has shown some signs this year, and he definitely brings a different element to this to this Warriors group. So. Uh, yeah, if uh, if I'm Sacramento and I lose the first two games at home, uh, I might as well just pack my bags and. Ah! <laughs> but, uh, I thought uh, you were gonna say something funny like that. <laughs> but uh, you know, Mike Brown, he 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 won't be able to throw in the towel. He's got to finish the series. So uh, the the thing that I would probably would would probably do is, you know, consider. Um you know, changing up the, the defensive strategy. If I've been blitzing and they've been picking us apart with the four on threes, I would consider, um, you know, doing kind of what the Celtics did in the NBA finals, which wasn't extremely effective because Steph Curry went off, but play a little bit more to take everybody else away and make Steph beat us sort of a a defensive strategy, which, you know, he's obviously more than capable of, but if you've got Fox and, and Davion Mitchell making things uncomfortable, you, that might be able to uh, um, shave off a few points off of that scoreboard on the, uh, on the Warriors offense. And then, you know, I think there's an element of, the the Kings offense has has some different variations you can go to right you can be a more Fox centric offense you can be a more Sabonis centric offense you can be more of the Warriors style offense with the split cut stuff so I guess depending on if if certain areas aren't working you just lean more into the oh, other elements of your offense that makes sense to I me mean, I understand that for sure I'm going Warriors mm. in six I'm closer to Warriors in five than I am Warriors in seven. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the experience, the fact that the Warriors, I think are a more well-balanced team on both ends of the floor, uh, you know, despite the fact that their road record is so terrible, you know, when you look at their top three guys and Steph Draymond and Clay, they're all playing well, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so that's something to consider. And then, you know, the Wiggins coming back and being expected to play, even if he's not, you know, playing at peak Andrew Wiggins level, just providing that, that three and D play, even if it's for 20 minutes, even if it's not, you know, he shoots 35% instead of 40% from three. I think that is an added boost. And this team just needed a little extra size and he provides that. He does bring that. It's only, it's a little things on that. So I agree. Let's, uh, let's get to your prediction, Corbin. Who do you have, uh, who do you have taken this series? I want to say Warriors in six, but I'm going to be bold and say Warriors in five. All right, let's get to the uh, let's get to the last one. And to be honest, Corbin, I feel like this is the one that's going to take the least amount of time out of what we've uh, we've discussed, and that is the four seed Phoenix Suns versus the five seed Los Angeles Clippers. And and I say that be, mainly because like <laughs> I really have no idea what this series is going to be because we 
I don't know what these two teams are, really. Yeah. Uh, we've yeah. gotten like what 10 games or less of uh of kd on the suns we um you know the clippers have barely played three games in a row with the same five guys <laughs> so it's uh you know i i don't know the status of of paul george really i i think he's going to miss the first game for sure is that correct has that been announced um, yes, no, it most definitely is. I think they even update non update, like he's not ready, yada yada, yada, wait and see. So, yeah, update non update says that he, um, will definitely miss game one. Yeah, so my expectation is he's not going to play in the series, and that's kind of where I'm basing my prediction and my talk on this series. It, it obviously okay. would be a lot more competitive if Paul George played at any point. But um, yeah, what uh, you know, I'm going to act as the uh, as Monty Williams and the Phoenix Suns, who went 45 and 37, 17th in offense, ninth in defense, 12th in net rating at plus 1.3. Corbin's going to be the Clippers and Ty Lue at 44 and 38, 22nd in offense, 18th in defense, 21st in net rating, and uh, the only team here with a negative net rating at negative 0.3. But uh, the regular season matchups were tied at two. But again, none of the matchups matter. <laughs> the, uh, the the last game was the final game of the regular season. And the top four players on the Suns, KD, CP3, Booker, and Aiden, all sat. Uh, in the February 6th contest, the Clippers won 116-107. But uh, Kevin Durant played. Paul, or, I mean, Kevin Durant was not with the Suns at this point. And uh, Paul George uh, played in that game. And then in the December 15th contest in which the Suns won 111.95, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Zubach, none of them played. And uh, right at the beginning of the year, October 23rd, uh, the Suns won 112.95. Of course, we didn't have KD at that point. Kawhi was on the 20-minute restriction, and uh, Paul George didn't play. Uh, So just really nothing to take away from any of those matchups. No. <laughs> so when you when you think about this series Corbin, what uh, what are a couple of things that uh that stick out to you? Um the depth of the Clippers and what will be brought to bear in this matchup because when I look at the Clippers, you know, obviously Paul George is out. Um are you going with the guys who've been in your rotation most recently like Norman Powell and of course Nick Batum are you going with guys who've been out of the rotation like Marcus Morris or um um Robert Covington like how are you going to deploy those wings against Kevin Durant uh because obviously you want to shield Kawhi Leonard and and keep him you know as fresh as possible to run your offense also who's stepping up you know in the wake of losing Paul George uh for the last chunk of this season so far since Paul George has been gone it's been Russell Westbrook and Russell Westbrook is the ultimate feast or famine guy you know uh one you know return to the postseason for him that's great but also like you know he can definitely push the pace keep the tempo going you know be aggressive and and, and get the Clippers to play in transition um in a way that can make the Suns uncomfortable he can also turn over the ball be baiting outside shots that have no chance of going in and be a defensive liability as well so we'll talk about him a little later but he's um that's what I think about when I think of this matchup. How are the Clippers going to adjust to the Suns? I think the Suns are definitely top-heavy, but off the bench, I mean, they do have good defensive-minded folks, and their top four is as good as any. Better. 
than most, actually. Yeah, uh, we uh, we discussed this series a little bit on our live show. That was a that was a blast on which we got to do again. Yes, sir. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know a couple of things that I mentioned there that I'll that I'll bring up again. Um, you know, with with Russell Westbrook playing heavy minutes now, and the fact that they acquired uh, Mason Plumley at the uh, the trade deadline, and they're playing Zubac and Plumley almost every minute at center. The Clippers don't have the spacing that they that they used to, and I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Kevin Durant is the one assigned to Russell Westbrook, so he can just kind of do what Draymond Green did in that uh, in that Clippers Warriors game, where he just lays off and uh, is able to just be a rim deterrent, right? And and um, basically, uh, you know, convince Russ to, to take as many threes as humanly possible, even though he's been shooting them better with the Clippers. I'll, I'll give him credit for that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I just, without Paul George, I just don't think that the Clippers have enough offensive firepower. You know, again, they were they were 22nd in offense this season. You know, there's there's an element of, despite the fact that, yeah, players have been in and out um you know they are who we thought they were i feel like that's kind of how i feel. Oh, I love that line yep <laughs> and uh you know Kawhi obviously is an absolute monster but i think there's a chance he can go off and average 30 points a game in this series and they can still lose in five no it's very possible i think that that's the one thing you worry about when you think about this team is that they kind of have the ultimate run of like with their depth, I can see them get hot from shooting and make it competitive back and forth for Phoenix. I can see them not be able to contain Kevin Durant at all, regardless of what they do and go down in five with one hard fall game. If Paul George does return, when is that at what status will he be at? Because that'll be something as well. Even if it's only as an elaborate decoy, it forces the Suns to make some different changes. With that being said, if he's not fully healthy, doesn't really matter what they do. You know what I mean? Like, the Suns still have the advantage. So I definitely think that there's a lot there, um, even though there's not a lot there, if that makes sense. Like, there's a lot to think about. But if we're going, like, just off what we know, like, okay, who do the Suns have available? Who do the Clippers have available? Okay, bet. You know what I mean? Like, then it's a little different. So, yeah, I, I can talk myself into circles on this one for sure. Well, and, like, if if we go into the whole idea of, like, okay, what did the series look like when they played um, – what was that in 2021? Mm-hmm. Uh, in yeah, you're right. Tyler going small and in the Western well, Conference Finals. Yeah, the the Clippers went small, but they had a younger Marcus Morris, and he has looked he's looked a little creaky, I would say, in 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 recent months. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know they, I don't think they, and also I think Russell Westbrook makes the going small a little bit more of a challenge because the whole point of going small is to get more shooting and he takes away your shooting in a lot of respects. Exactly. So, um, they, uh, I don't feel like they're as well suited to go small as they were then. And then also, you know, the Suns in that series at times you could see, okay, DeAndre Ayton is a bit of a kryptonite for small ball because he has the ability to catch and finish so well inside but then Kevin Durant is also on this team now, and he is uh, he is terrific in isolation and scoring the basketball. So I just think with those four guys, if those four guys are healthy for Phoenix in this series and the Clippers don't have Paul George, um, I just think they have too much offensive firepower. I think it's just going to be 
a little bit too much to overcome because the Suns can play two of those guys for all 48 minutes. And, yeah. and also, you know, the, the quote unquote other guys that the Suns would play as that fifth starter, you know, none of them are defensive studs, you know, but they're all guys that you would be at least okay with throwing on Kawhi, right? You could put Tory Craig on Kawhi. You can put Josh Okogie on Kawhi. They might need some help. You know, they're, they're going to get scored on, but um, I think it's, it's valuable that those guys can take the energy that is required to guard Kawhi and allow Kevin Durant to, to roam on defense and then expend his energy on the offensive end. No, I agree. And the, the Suns, at the end of the day, have more ways of making these advantageous situations with, with which to do so, right? You know, if you're the Clippers, you know, in, in addition to not having your 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 best, where your second best offensive player, you also lose a valuable wing defender who can also kind of slide over and guard that guard spot, you know, who also can defend your Devin Booker potentially can kind of stay in front of your Chris Paul. You you skew bigger with that, you know, especially with Russ being a relative defensive liability, right? You skew bigger on your defenders who are not as versatile. And if they are, are versatile towards, you know, three, four, five in terms of positions, except not quite the three, four, five, because neither of them can stay in front of Kevin Durant like that. So, you know, it's like for all the wrong reasons, you can occupy those positions, but you don't bring that positional value to play down for a Booker or a, or a Chris Paul, who I think could also have a sneaky good series, you know? Um, I think one match I'm really looking at is Aiton versus Zubac. Like, Zubac, like, how is that going to go? The back and forth there where the Suns forget about, you know, Aiton entirely. Will Zubac, will Zubac be able to, like, neutralize him anyway? Like, that's important to me. But going back to what you said, yeah, as far as um, defensively, the Clippers are at a distinct disadvantage, especially without Paul George. Yeah, and you know, I think Terrence Mann is a guy that can make the likes of Chris Paul and Devin Booker uncomfortable at times, like he did in that oh, matchup in 2021. But I mean, I forget him. Yes, how many how many minutes is Terrence Mann going to play in this series? I mean, you know, he hasn't he would, been playing yeah. much as of late since the acquisition of Westbrook. Which is unfortunate because I don't think his position was ever a point guard to begin with. I just feel like that's where they were putting him to, to take his minutes. You know, and, and it has some success as well. I just feel it's an unfortunate reality that his minutes suffered in the wake of um, his minutes suffered in the wake of Westbrook's arrival. Even though, in my mind, like Terrence Mann's position and Westbrook's position are different. All right, so let's let's hear uh, who you've got as an X, X factor in this series, Corbin. Um, X factor for me. I just had this one too. I originally went with Russell Westbrook, but we just uh, we talked, and I I want to go back to him, but I'm going to go with Terrence Mann ultimately because I think Terrence Mann is the one guy like you brought up that if he's knocking out his threes like he did against the Suns too, you know he's knocking out outside shot fine, but he's also your only hope of a capable wing defender that guards your twos and threes. And I think that's important. Like I said, brought up a minute ago, the distinction is important because yes, Kevin Durant is a moot subject. There isn't a single person outside of Kawhi and even Kawhi isn't stopping Durant. Right. But at the same time, like again, for all the plethora of wings, the, the um, Clippers have, they skew the opposite direction. And you only have one in Terrence man, Eric Gordon from a physicality standpoint can do it. But from a quickness standpoint, I don't think has it. And I think that might he might wear down over time. Not that Booker is the most fleetest of foot, but I like Terrence Mann as a better matchup there, especially with Chris Paul. Um, 
but also Eric Gordon. I guess Eric Gordon could be another guy. You know what? No, I'm going to stick with Terrence Mann. But Aaron Gordon is another guy I could think will be X-Factor, too, because he can play those guard spots. If he can hold up physically, um, if he can just stay, you know, with Paul, you know, coming around screen and in that action, stay with Booker, make it difficult, and also knock down his threes, you're not going to be a star in your role. But if he gets, like, 15 points a night, like, that's that's big for Aaron Gordon. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I like both of those. And, um, you know, I'm not going to pick an X factor on the Suns just because I feel like we know what we're getting from, <laughs> from most of the Phoenix Suns. And mm-hmm. that's why I like them in this series. Spoiler for the prediction coming up. But, um, oh no. The, uh, and I'll, I'll name another shooting guard on the Clippers as an X factor, Norman Powell. I was thinking about him. I was thinking about him. But there's basically any of your Clipper wings that can play the two could be your X factor in this one. And I think specifically, I'm thinking, I mean, yeah, I like the Terrence Mann one specifically for defending the Suns, but I like the Norman Powell one in terms of scoring against the Suns. Because there you go. I like that too. You're right. Putting the pressure on. Without Paul George, at least early on in the series, I think they need his, uh, his ability to score at all three levels. Um, you know, I think Russell Westbrook obviously is going to have to pick up some of the slack as well. So I know you you mentioned him as well. And I feel like Russell Westbrook is just unequivocally an X factor in every series that he ever plays in. You, that, that you are finally getting me, Garrett. Thank you. Yes. You understand. Anywhere Russ goes, he's the X factor. Now he sure. does what he wants. But no, kidding aside, I really think he could be an X factor. I just felt it would just be obviously on brand for me. But who steps up in terms of assuming volume scoring outside of, of Kawhi? Westbrook has done that already recently. He has stands a good chance as any to be able to do that and continue that. But we've also seen Westbrook give in to his own inhibitions and basically play off the floor, right? I do like that Tyloo, I think, will trust that if Westbrook doesn't have it going on, Westbrook will be going on the bench. But at the same time, like, he was someone's going to put my X Factor. But I feel like there's others who are just more important at this stage in time. All right. So if you're the Clippers and you lose the first two in Phoenix, what, uh, as Ty Lue, Corbin, what uh, adjustments are you making to turn it around heading back to L.A.? Um, we're starting Terrence Mann. Uh, probably starting Terrence Mann. Um, maybe going smaller. Uh, seeing if, you know, Kawhi at the four. Terrence Mann the three, um, Eric Gordon the two. Uh, depending on Russ's playing, you play Russ, and then let's get a different look in there. And you know, we I don't think I have if if Russ is not playing well, um, maybe we throw Norm Powell in for Russ and then bring Mason Plumlee off the bench. Mason Plumlee can continue that passing, can still be a reasonable deterrent for Aiton, and then you have four wing size guards. You should switch everything, and just do your best with that length. Um, that you have different positions just to try to make things as tough as you can for KD and just, you know, work your offense, knock down some shots. That's what I would do if I'm down 0-2. Uh, I think that's just like a throw it, like throw everything at the wall, see what sticks type thing, and just have this frenetic energy with this group. Yeah, so if I'm Phoenix and I'm down 0-2, uh, the, I'm guessing Kawhi's averaged 45 points a game in the first two matchups, so I think first priority would be to send doubles his way and and force the ball out of his hands, make anybody else other than Kawhi beat us. Uh, I think offensively, um, you know, try to try to run some actions to just get a little bit more flow in the offense. If the offense is just bogged down to isolations and in part, you you said that the Clippers have the capacity, at least at times. To, uh, to throw out some switchable lineups that can can bog some offenses down. But 
Um, just trying to get any sort of movement that you can out there so it's not just completely stationary. Just throw it to KD and watch him dribble eight times. Um, but, uh, you know, then outside of that, mixing and matching the guys around your core four. So if a Kogi isn't playing well, try a Tory Craig or, you know, try a Damian Lee or a Terrence Ross. If, if uh, you know, Jock Landale is not playing well, give Biombo a little run and see what happens. Um, try Troy Craig at the five, if need be, if both of your centers are really struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that would be what I would go with, but uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's get to the, uh, the series prediction and I will go first. And uh, I think this one is going to be pretty easy. I've got sons in five. I'm going to go sons in six. Okay. I, 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 I feel like you in the last prediction, I feel sons more in five than in seven. Um, but I'm going to give the Clippers more credit, and I also want to hold out just in case Paul George does return. Let's say game four or five. Uh, whether he comes back whole or is just enough to give the Clippers some, you know, some some strength in terms of renewing their own energy, I'm, I'm going to go Clippers in six. But either way, I don't or think sun, it'll be. Six, right? Sorry, Suns in six. Thank you. Your boy is winding out here. Um, but either way, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go Suns in six. But I think that if, um, if Paul George does come back, it'll be a little interesting. Yeah, so um, I'll just say this. This might be a hot take. But if the Clippers win this series, I think it's uh, we're going to be talking about Kawhi Leonard as the best player in basketball or or near that if, if that happens. Whoa. I mean, honestly, I say whoa, but, like, no, because, I yeah, you have, like, what else would make that possible? What if, well, well hold up, wrinkle. What if the Clippers win and Russell Westbrook has an amazing series? <laughs> you know what, Corbin? I hadn't even considered that possibility. I'm just saying, you know, like best player in basketball. I'm just, I'm just, just listen. Hear me out, friend. No, I'm joking. But <laughs> am I? No, but no, seriously, I am. But um, no, all all jokes aside, I think that um, yeah, if that if that were to happen, you what case would you have against it? I mean, the Clippers are underdogs. You're playing shorthanded uh, against one of the best four that we've seen in recent memory. You know, I'd say even best two if we're going just Booker and Durant, you know, and and to say one guy, basically, you, you, you hitched your wagon onto him and he led the way, you know, playing the defense is going to be necessary to do. Well, also the clutch shot making and the, and the leading all the way through there. They're, 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 yeah, there's no doubt it would have to be him. So we'll see. Um, can his legacy be even more written than it has been? You know, seeing what he did, you know, growing up in San Antonio as a player and then going to Toronto, leading the way that he did, and then going to the Clippers, like, is that something he still has that you could add another etch to his ledger there? I'm not putting it past him, but it's a tough task. Absolutely. All right, Corbin, well, we'll just uh, rapid fire the two other series that we know of right now, which is, and just do our prediction real quick. Um, so we've got uh, in the East, we have the 2-7 matchup between the Boston Celtics and the Atlanta Hawks. Who do you have in that and how, and how many games? I have Boston in five. I'm, 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 and I'm, even then, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking one Trey Young explosion, but I really don't see it. I think Boston has the necessary defenders to swallow it up. I think they have the depth to outlast Atlanta. Atlanta's not the best outside shooting team. So, yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Boston. 
I, I agree. And I also have them in, winning it at five. So uh, the, the last one, the three seed Philadelphia 76ers taking on the six seed Brooklyn Nets. I'll go first on this one and say that uh, I've got this as a sweep Philly in four. I think, uh, you know, Nick Claxton, you know, a lot of people probably haven't watched him play. He's had a terrific defensive season, but if there's one matchup where his defensive ability is kind of, uh, you know, not going to be that impactful, it's the matchup against Joel Embiid. Uh, he just doesn't Absolutely. have the strength and size to deal with him at all. Uh, so I think Joel Embiid is going to feast and the Sixers are going to win it pretty easily. I'm with you as well. I'm I'm uh, sharing the same uh, sentiments as uh, our dear former Laker Kyle Kuzma. Go Sixers. I just think that, um, yeah, there's the Nets kind of are here largely on the backs uh, of what Katie and Kyrie provided them when they were in a Nets uniform. Uh, they have a lot to figure out moving forward, and I think that they will. Uh, it won't be in this playoff series. They have no one to defend Harden. I think the 76ers collectively are too much, and so I'm also going to take the 76ers in four. All right, Corbin. Well, I appreciate you uh, you coming on for this uh, you know classic long episode of Duncan. I Diet. love these. <laughs> and uh, you know, I uh, you've got a uh, you've got a podcast that you're doing pretty much right after this. So uh, you know, go. Uh, I'll let you go. But uh, again, thanks so much for coming on. This was an absolute blast. Always a treat, my friend. I appreciate talking basketball with you. Let's do this again real soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Corbin Ford and Gary Bouguet here with you. And uh, just wanted to, to quickly say before we wrap up, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review Duncan Dynasty. We're on, uh, we're on iTunes. We're on Spotify, wherever you get your, uh, your podcast. That is uh, much appreciated. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Garrett Bouguet. Corbin, why don't you tell the people what you got going on? Oh, man, you can find me on Twitter at CorbinNBA. Uh, definitely make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. I mean, following me is just an afterthought here. But if you want some more NBA content from yours truly, uh, check out Round Ball Ramble. Um, it is my podcast. You can also find uh, the description uh, on my Twitter handle, or on my once you click on my Twitter handle. Uh, definitely check that out. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of other um, assorted pods. I love talking hoops just like my friend Garrett does. So you know where to find me there. That's the main part to catch my work. Yeah, can't recommend Round Ball Ramble enough. Corbin does goes, does great stuff there, and I've appeared on it numerous times and uh, <laughs> hopefully will be uh, continuing to appear on it in the future. Again, we appreciate you all for listening and, of course, enjoy the next week in the NBA calendar.